Well, cheers, mate. Thanks for coming on. Appreciate you. Yeah, absolutely. It's, let's cheers to the end of your summer break, I guess. Yeah, huh? that is officially over. When did when did you go back? Uh, uh, so with kids yesterday. And oh, the then, kids are back already. Yeah, we have we've had kids for the last two days, and then officially contracted. I think I went back Thursday, but I've been in there for two weeks trying to transition. Jeez. So, is it, am I is my memory just bad or like I feel when I was a kid that summer break was Memorial Day to Labor Day. Memorial Day was kind of the start of it. You might have gone back for a week after Memorial Day, but that pretty much signaled okay we're done. And then we didn't go back till after Labor Day in September, maybe like some years just before Labor Day. But now the kid, like summer breaks, what, two months? Yeah. A month? I mean, I vividly remember, I think that, because I get a lot of this and people talk about this, but it's, when I think back, I think of Peach Fest being after the first week of school. Which is next weekend, It's right? next week. Okay. So I don't think it's changed that much out here. Now you ask some other people and they're going to remember it that same way. And whether or not it was like that when I was in elementary school, I don't remember. Okay. But I think second or third week of August is just how it's been for a while. In Colorado. In co- at least in this valley. Okay. You yeah. Know? Well, I went to school in New Jersey growing up, so maybe it was different there. But summer just felt so long as a kid when you were younger. Right. right? Like you, your perception of time was so much different. Just like a week of school. Like you remember being a kid and it would be Monday and you're like, it was a long time How ago. How yeah. am I going to get through this week? You know, it's like, wow, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you have to go through all this grind. Now the week, the weeks fly by. Well, I remember question. thinking back to like when you're, when you're little and you're looking forward to another year of school, like high school. And you're in sixth grade, and you're like, that's so far away. Yeah, I got and, four years. Oh, I have to go to school for 12 years? Oh. Now I'm thinking I'm in teaching in year 17, and I'm like, where is that? You've been a teacher for 17 years? Yeah, this is year 17. Holy crap, man. Yeah. But you have an age, it doesn't look like. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's got to be a pretty stressful job. It, it can be, and it's, the, you know, I've had better and worse years, and... You know, as long as you're in a good school with good systems and good people around you. Like, I'm at a new school this year, and I was recently, I was talking to one of my colleagues um, that came over with me from the other school, and we're really excited about how positive the atmosphere is. And that that takes away a lot of it, you know. Is it more of when you say good years and bad years, is it more the system or the kids? Like I think they probably work with each other. Okay. You know, course, I think yeah. that if you have weak systems that kids can take advantage of it, um, I can only think of one year where I'm like, yeah, those kids were bad. Yeah. <laughs> that was a while ago, and it was a it was a rough year. Are you with the same kids all day, or do they rotate in and They out? rotate. It's like class. I mean, my schedule now is more like a high school s- schedule. Okay. But I have five different sections of different kids. So and after elementary old? school, they switch. I'm doing seventh and eighth grade now. All right. So they're a little older. Yeah. So they, in theory, are more mature. and You'd like to think. Yeah, you would. Or, <laughs> we were talking today, though, like sometimes a little less maturity is a little better. You can be too mature for your age. Really? Well, because you get to a point where you're like, they're not going to do anything to us. Ah, you I know, see. Like, what are they so they do? know, like, okay, realistically, They start testing your me. systems because they're like, what are they going to do? Yeah, they're just coming into their troublemaking. That's right. And they're intentionally doing it now, whereas when they were younger, it was more Right, innocent. so if they're a like little I'm, like, this group feels like I'm not feeling boundaries being tested. So I'm like, that's oh, pretty okay. Right. You know. But do you know most of the kids you're with now because they you saw them at the school last year, or is it all fresh faces? Well, so I'm new at this school. 
This is your first year? Yeah. Oh. So this is the first year I've been anonymous in 13 years. It's a weird feeling. Oh. Because I was a staple. I was like an institution at my last school. You went from being a celebrity to a nobody. I don't know if celebrity was... Maybe like 10 years ago I was a celebrity. In the I kids' think eyes. Was, You're the celebrity? I was like grumpy old curmudgeon man. They see you in the grocery <laughs> store. Mr. Somerville. Oh, my God. They used to. Now yeah. it's like... So where were you before? I was at East Middle School in Junction. Is that the one that closed? That's the one that closed. Ah, so you lost your job. Yeah, I lost that position. Okay. So. Was it easy to transfer? Not at all. It wasn't? No, it was emotional. It was hard. It was a lot of work, strenuous. Yeah. You know. I was just reading in the paper about D51 and how they're meeting now to see if they're going to close other schools. And I got to admit, I'm pretty ignorant about the whole situation. So I'd love to hear what actually happened. When did you find out the school was going to close? So we found out. It felt pretty short-term. Um, I think there was a rumor going around for a couple of weeks that the conversation was happening. And I want to say this. I, I, I'm i going to get it wrong if I say when it was. April? So March not, or April? Oh, so late in the year. Yeah. It wasn't like going into the year. You're like, all right, no, this, could this be wasn't our even on the conversation. Oh, wow. Um, and so it was after Christmas that we even caught wind that the conversation was even happening. And then. I bet it, it seemed like maybe February was the first we heard of it, and we didn't really believe it. And East is in the middle of Grand Junction. It's an inner city school where kids walk. Most so, kids walk to school. Yeah, so we're like, it's a neighborhood. Yeah. And we're like, we're fine. You know, there, this is a service to the community that has to exist here. We were not under, we weren't under enrolled. You know, like we were okay. In fact, no signs we were, of trouble. Yeah, it didn't make any sense. And so then that happened, and the rationale was enrollment being down. Who makes that decision, though? The, the superintendent of the school, or is there a district? So it's, I mean, Is that what the D51 is, District 51? Yeah, so it's similar, I guess, to the town is you have your administrator who is, works for the board, and so he's gonna, if he or she is effectively going to make the decision to be approved by the board. And then they're all going to have their advisors and people that they look at. And their official statement in April was just saying, we don't have enough enrollment. It's not financially viable to continue running the school. Right. Did they have proof of that? Like showing you a budget where they're losing money? No. no. So there was, what their basis was, was a they had a demographer who made an assessment of the situation. He only did it. He only spent like a week or two doing What's it. What's a demographer? Demographics, like populations, trends. Oh, okay. And so he took us, he called it his windshield view of this area. And through that, he was able to assess that and provide data that showed these neighborhoods are this and that in terms of this. And then he drew some bubbles on maps that showed areas and spaces and they used that to decide that East Middle School was the one. How many kids were at the school? Oh, God. 450 ballpark? 450 kids. Maybe. We okay. were a small school. Yeah. So was West. And actually, it was wonderful. If I had it my way, every school would be that size. Mount Garfield's massive. How many people there? I think we're up around six this year. 600? Yeah. Okay. And yeah. I think, you know, I don't. It's nice, but I like all of, all 600 of them, but that's a lot of people. Yeah, it's nicer when it's small. You yeah, get to it was know quaint. everyone better. Yeah, get to know each other so, deeper. Yeah. All right, so when you found out in April, what was your reaction? Were you... It was pretty... I mean, it was harder on my daughter than it was for me because that was her school too. Oh, she went there too? Yeah. Wow. So she had to get up. She had to switch kids, like friends and all that. For me, it was... I mean, I, I don't want to overstay it, but it, 
there was grieving. Yeah. I'll say it at that. Like yeah. whatever grief is to anybody, there were the stages and the phases and the acceptance and the frustration and saying things I don't mean and whatever. But it was something of a big part of my life. 13 years you were there? Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. And so, yeah, that was a lot of things. A lot of things happened in my life when I was at that school. And I knew, I know a lot of people in my life because of that school. I've had generations of kids. I've had full families of people that I got to know. And then I got cut off from a couple of those generations. You know, that was hard too, because I had some kids that I'd had two or three of their siblings and I had a sixth grader coming up. Mm, Yeah. So you're seeing the whole lineage of the family. But then they take, I don't get that one that I know who's, I've known him since he was four. Yeah. But on the flip side, now I get some of my friends' kids over here at Mount Garfield that I've known the same way. So it's been good and bad. Yeah. Good things lead to bad things. Bad things lead to good things. There's always that. I landed on my feet and it all worked out and things are good. And What was the reaction of other people? Was everyone pretty annoyed that it closed or were there some people being like, yeah, this makes sense, whatever? Yeah. I mean, you got a range of, you got some people who have political stuff going on with it and then and it got political and so they were supportive. Um and then there were other people who were outraged. You probably on the fringes. I'm using my hands to talk, even though this isn't video. I can see, you, bro. <laughs> You're talking to me. Don't worry about anything else. You had a range. You had a. You have your fringes, and then you had the people in the middle that were trying to make sense of it and try and. And I think it's still being. You know, they to the board's credit, they step back on their other decisions and they put together a committee that they probably should have done in the first place. I don't know how that's going to go. Uh, yeah, I'm reading that they're, now they're looking at all the other schools and deciding which one should close and stay open. Is this all a budgetary thing? How many schools can you close and then still have enough room for kids? Well, and that's where it comes down to. Like, What I would like to have seen in this process was an impact statement, which still hasn't happened. Like, they're, They have not put down a, a bottom line for this is going to save so much money. Because you think about where does most of your money goes? It's to FTEs, positions, jobs. Well, there's not fewer kids, so you're going to still have the same number of teachers. Where? Where do you put them? It's just different buildings. So now are you cramming buildings full of teachers and kids, and is that efficient? Is it cost-effective? So it, it's more like I equated it to um, moving the deck chairs of the Titanic around. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You know, everyone's going down anyway. Right. <laughs> so it's like you didn't actually solve a problem. However, you did affect a lot of lives, and that was what was frustrating about it. And I think so – you know, my community is Palisade. This is where I live. This is my first and foremost concern. But I genuinely feel for the people of the 8th and Gunnison block and that part of Junction who had a neighborhood school that does not exist anymore. Totally. And, and reading some of the articles in the paper, too, about the kids speaking out and how disappointed they, they were, were and leaving their friends. It actually triggered for me. I switched schools from between third and fourth grade. And obviously I was young at the time, but I can remember putting up a little bit of a fight with my mom and being like, I do not want to change schools. How could you do this to me? Now I got to go somewhere new, fit in all over again. I'm not going to see my friends every day. I really feel for the kids. That's really hard. It's bad enough when you're that young and trying to figure everything out and then your whole world is turned upside down. It's not easy. They'll still keep their friends. It's a small town valley we live in, but... You know, there's something to be said about that community you go to every day that now is just gone. Right, And it was such a cool campus, too, because, like, dogs walked by every day. You know, like, I could st- I could just stare out the window and watch dogs. Dogs? Absolute dogs walking by. Cool dogs, and there's pretty trees, and it's a park. Yeah. The campus was a park. Huh. And it was nice. What are they going to do with it now? I have no idea. 
And I'll be honest, I kind of have like removed myself from it's just You gotta step away. I did. And yeah. because I wanna make the most out of where I'm at now. And there's a lot to be positive about with that. And it's at a certain point I had to quit being emotionally attached to what was happening. I wasn't going to change it. I, I told myself I was going to stop complaining about it and stop being upset because it's done. Yeah. And so now it is, how do I make the most out of the situation at Mount Garfield? And so far it's through two days. It couldn't have gone better. So what did you do? Just apply to every other school in the Valley, right? With, with there must've been a mass rush of teachers trying to. So they gave us preferential, what do you call it? We did have to make it. We had to apply. And then they figured out the openings that were out there. And so I applied at probably four different schools. I was offered positions at all of them. Oh, wow. So I did get a choice in the end. Nice. And it was to come back home. And that worked out pretty okay. And so now you're two days in. Now I'm two days in, and, and the kids have been great. The kids just Staff's got Staff's been awesome. Mount Garfield's doing really cool things. Systems, you, we talked about systems. Systems are dialed in. You must feel like the new kid in school. So much so. Yeah. Like, well, and with the new kid in school, Hazel and I are doing it together. Oh. You know, so we're like yeah. kind of going through that or at the same point, and my son's just moved to Mount Garfield. He's a new kid in school there, so or not Mount Garfield, Palisade School. So everybody's a new kid. <laughs> Did every kid get to pick where they wanted to go? No. no. I mean, I guess in – no, not really because there's, in theory, their school of choice, but there was no way with that lim limited time that they could accommodate that. Right. So Hazel came back to her home school, which was Mount Garfield. She was with me by choice originally. And then – so she came back to her – what would have been her home school. But with that, there was limited capacity for school of choice because they had to get kids in – place so they could figure out staffing and all that other stuff yeah that was the downside of making the decision as hastily as they did is that it really painted them into a corner right and what was the reason they didn't give any more warning because they thought that they would put the schools in a worse situation the cat was out of the bag so theoretically let's say east is on the chopping block for the next year teachers were going to look out for themselves and go find jobs mm -hmm. so now you've just put this whole school it was a Big old mess. Yeah, so you kind of wait till the end so no one jumps ship in the middle. Yeah, they would have anyways, though. Yeah. You know, because they did announce it before hiring season, and a lot of people were going to be gone. In fact, in, even in the end, I think only about half the teachers on our staff last year, which was an excellent staff, nobody deserved, nobody would have been let go. I think half of them are gone now. Either left the district or quit teaching. Just over it. Yeah. Done. Wow. So, so did you enjoy your summer or were you that just was great. kind of <laughs> I did. I mean, I got a full July that I got to enjoy. What'd you do? Uh, played golf, took the dogs to the river a lot, um, watched birds, hung out with the kids. Was that one of the reasons you became a teacher? Because the summer's off? It helps. Yeah. You know, I, I think a lot of people talk about that whole thing, but it is, you asked about the stress level. I probably was a little modest about it. It's exhausting teaching is just the stressful part because you don't like you dream school you think about it all the time you're dealing with situations that um i've had 10 kids die since i started teaching die uh-huh what suicides whatever like deaths of kids really you're dealing with home lives you know about things you don't want to know about yeah you're obviously dealing with things that are out of your control in many cases there's all kinds of stuff going on. It's hard. And it's you're dealing hard. with the parents too. And there's that as well. Have you been like cussed out by parents Absolutely. and things like that? Uh, yeah. 
I've had parents that wanted to come fight me because I dress coded their kid or whatever. Really? Yep. yep. They They challenge you to a fight? I'm coming down there. Oh, God. I'm on my way. All yeah, right. I mean that's got to seep into your family, like your own personal life. I think when you're younger, you it bothers you more, and then when you as you you start to, I'm not very good at like. I wish I let things go better, and I'm working on that. But it's like, yeah, it's if you're dealing with you're dealing with adults, you know, it's so the point is is you need to recharge the batteries. Like, I remember one of the biggest mistakes I made was my second year of teaching. I chose a job in the summer. I was working a kid's rec program. Mm. And by the time I had done a full school year and then did kid's rec and then school was starting again, I didn't like kids enough. You were burnt out. I was like, I need a break from kids. So it's like, you need that break. And most of us work two jobs. And like, we work a summer job or we do something else anyways. But you, I think you have to recharge the batteries. Yeah, and between this and COVID, geez, you've had a rough couple of years. Yeah. I was teaching during the pandemic. Uh, in, in some way, I don't know. Did you guys go remote or? No, we stayed in person for most of it. We did a period of time. We finished a school year remote, and then we came back and had that group of kids. And I understand, like, so my sister's a teacher in Providence who had it 10,000 times worse than we did. She was dealing with a lot of death, like parents, families, that, um, in a very urban population that just – you know, you saw the images of big cities on TV. Oh, yeah. So, you know, for the for the valley, being in this desert climate or for whatever reason, it just We were didn't, lucky. We didn't hit it. And we stayed open. And I had the absolute... So the way we got through with it was I had two sets of kids for two and a half hours a day. So they limited trans... That. And I just happened to get the best group of kids you could ever ask for. So I didn't hate it at all. Oh, you didn't? No, I didn't. And you didn't have to teach online ever? Not very much. Only for a couple months to finish that school year. And that was, I was the worst online teacher you've ever had in your life. I mean, had you ever done it before? No, I didn't. Have, yeah. I had no training. I had no idea what I was doing. I sat out on my back porch and watched birds and the bird feeders and <laughs> tried to be tried to interact with people but it just wasn't the same and the whole class their heads are up on the zoom and you're as much as you i didn't do that much because i'm not a lecture teacher to begin with so in my case i was going to try and meet with as many people one-on-one as i could all right so you're teaching english though right yeah writing english now yeah english okay yeah so and you don't lecture no how do you what's your style what do you do um great stories and great conversations Make them read stories yeah. and then just talk about it. It just, it, whatever it is your point of emphasis is. So you have your standard and case in point eighth grade, we're heavy on theme. And then it's like all of your, you could make a, a chart around theme of different characters, conflict, whatever it is that they're doing to articulate meaning. And so we emphasize different parts of that. So yeah, I think it's like you pick a great story like Fahrenheit 451 and then they're doing all kinds of analysis, and I love good Socratic discussions, and the kids just tossing ideas around. So, no, I'm not a lecturer. You guys are reading Ray Bradbury right now. Yeah, we will be in a minute. Oh, that's yeah. a great book. Oh, yeah. I love it. Have you done that book before in I classes? Have. Okay. We actually, so at, at East, we did Fahrenheit 451, followed by 1984, followed by... George Orwell, right? Uh-huh. Wow. And the, so having eighth graders reading that. You got a sci-fi theme going, huh? Well, uh, uh, dystopian. Yeah. Yeah. So it was connecting those parts. Um, at the After that, we would tie that into, uh, they would watch uh, The Truman Show. Oh. That was fun. 
What did you pick all these? Uh huh. All right. So what you're obsessed with dystopian future? No, well, it tied into what we were doing. So Fahrenheit's been kind of a, an anchor for eighth grade. A lot of teachers quit doing it, but you know, if you ever read the introduction to it, it talks about how it was a love letter to fiction. And so as much as there's the thematic stuff, it makes you appreciate the value of fiction writing. And so when you start to do that, like the kids, okay, okay, this is important to read. It's important for me to read The Great Gatsby. It's important for me to read these stories because they let me into a window of the world and how people live. And they, there's that whole awareness and there's all this stuff. So after they're done with that, they're totally dialed in. So my partner and I decided, let's start a 1984 out and see what happens. And they totally just dunked on it. They loved it. Well, once they get the theme, they can access the reading a lot more. Yeah. And they're following, and they were losing their minds. That's it was so, cool. so fun. What do they think of the Truman Show? How, how does that fit in? Because it's that it's that whole. I mean, the the themes in there are to be aware of that controlled society. Right. Right. And yeah. so Truman lives in a controlled society, and there's also what is real, what is not. So you remember Montag and Fahrenheit. When he, after he meets Clarice, she like it. I tie it all into um, the allegory of the cave, yeah, by Plato. Plato's cave, yeah. And so it's. I always say like, would wouldn't it be great? And I've drawn images of a stick figure doing backflips into the cave and kicking the guy in the face, <laughs> and then being like, guys, we should go outside. Yeah, you know, and that's what Clarice does to for Montag. She's like, do you ever look at the daisies? Yeah. And he starts getting obsessed with the daisies, and like, that's cool for these kids. Yeah. Especially because they've lived in such a YouTube world and they, they're being conditioned their own way. Yeah, I was just going to say, how, how are cell phones in the classroom? We, uh, you about? know what? I've been anti-phone for about five years. In the classroom. Uh-huh. Yeah. And the schools have come around to it. For a minute, there was like momentum of, hey, it's a computer in their hands and this is new technology. It's 21st century. And then we started dealing with Snapchat and all this other stuff. And it got awful. Well, they're texting all day, I all, imagine. Yeah, and uh, it's yeah. just the world... We give them a break from it, and now most schools are, they just simply aren't allowed. And it's just put your phone away if they take it, it out or you locker. collect them. If okay. I see it, if I know about it, it's gone. And oh, that's not it? just me. That's the whole school now and most, most of the district. And how long can you keep it for legally? So the way it works is, you, like, it'll go down first time. It goes to the office. You get it at the end of the day. The second time your parent has to come get it, and third time they usually work out a deal because, like, the parents want the kids to have, and that's understandable. Right. So it is okay. It's going to stay in the office, and you can have it to call your parents at the end of the day. And if it got bad after that, then you're talking. You're not talking about cell phones anymore. You're talking about non-compliance. Yeah. So is parental paranoia worse now than when you started? You said 13 years ago. Paranoia about what? anything just you know you said they want to have the phones and that's understandable because the kid might need to call or something and i don't know um, if i've noticed it being that bad um i mean i think on the outskirts you hear about paranoia about other parts of like critical race theory and stuff like that but you don't ever get it face to face what's up with ctr in your schools no it's not no (laughs) i mean i remember i was a social studies teacher and this was however many years ago and i had a random person call me be like, are you teaching critical race theory in your class? And I felt bad because I'm like, I don't know what that means. Yeah, can you explain what it is? No. Well, I can now. Okay. Um, Let's do it. But I didn't understand it at that. And I can't explain it on an expert level. I wouldn't be able to teach it. Right. You know? Um, it's, it's basically explaining history through the lens of race, though, right? Yeah. And I, I look at it more through systems, systemic stuff. 
you right. know, which Systemic. makes sense to me, but yeah. that's not limited to race. That's, you yeah. know, class we talk yeah. about here in the Valley and it, it so I think back when you look at the South, you didn't just have, let's talk about Jim Crow South, right? You didn't just have new or release slaves that were systemically, you had poor whites, you had immigrants, you had all this other stuff. And now out here you got the same. So it's like, it's very complicated. And so obviously nobody's been affected worse than, than African-Americans. Right. It's not even close. hundred percent. But none of that has anything to do with anything that we're talking about. Yeah. You're teaching books and reading. You're ta- but yeah. even with social studies, it's like slavery is a fact. Yep. It happens. Everything that goes with it is based on firsthand experience of the, uh, I forget the name of the guy, um, that he had his diaries and his journals and it's all primary source of him explaining the chattel form of slavery and everything that comes along with this is not even questionable. Yeah. Human history is crazy. And that's all we were. And that's all that's being taught as far as like what is being perceived as white guilt. I don't understand it. Yeah. Every, I think every society pretty much in human history has had slaves and slavery and it just, it doesn't, bode well for humans obviously it's sad it really yeah. is well and i think what needs and look at us we're talking how did sleep how did we get onto this i don't know we <laughs> talk. it's a conversation i think what gets missed and it has to be acknowledged is the difference between chattel and every other form in the world you know the breeding of humans and the selling of family members and in the separation and the way that the dehumanization and all of that that goes with it yeah it has to be taught so that the world will never tolerate it again. I agree. And so that's... How do we do that is yeah, the question. Yeah, well, it should be unquestionably a part of an education. Yeah. You know, I mean, the fact that people were kidnapped and packed on ships like livestock and moved over to another place and sold against their will and separated from their family and women were bred and their kids were sold. Like, yeah. how does anybody debate the... That that was wrong yeah. or not good. Yeah. So that's all. I, I mean. Does, from, do people debate that? I, I think that what we got into is who's responsible for it. And then it starts getting into uh, well, questionable I I, Yeah. I don't know if you can place blame other than just in humans. I mean, look at the way humans treat humans and all kinds of things. Yeah. I, you talk about the dehumanizing. I mean, there are many psychological experiments, both in the lab and in real life, that show that people are willing to do heinous things as long as someone else is telling them to do it. So, for example, when they studied the aftermath of the Holocaust, they interviewed a lot of the Nazi soldiers and were asking them, how could you have possibly done these things to other human beings? And they would shrug their shoulders and say, well, I was told to do it. And there's kind of a diversion of responsibility. They don't put the responsibility on themselves. They put it on the person who is ordering them to do it. They're able to do this heinous thing without really feeling responsible for it. There was this really cool psychological experiment. It's called the Milgram experiment. It happened in the early 60s. And the setup was there was one guy who was the quote-unquote learner. And he was in on it. And he was in a separate room hooked up to electrodes. And then in the main room was the subject, the, the guy who's being studied, plus an authority figure, usually a scientist in a lab coat. And what would happen was is the subject would ask the learner questions, starting off very simple and then maybe getting more complicated. And any time the learner would get the answer wrong, 
the authority figure would instruct the subject to deliver a penalty, which was in the form of this electric shock. And they had it set up so it wasn't actually giving the learner the electric shock, but when the subject would hit that button, it would make the appearance that he was giving this guy in the other room a shock and you would actually hear the guy yelp or scream. And as the experiment goes on, the shocks get more intense. The idea is to study like how far will the subject take this and how obedient will they be if there's a diffusion of responsibility. So yeah, like you're telling me to shock this guy and, and patients would actually not patient. The subjects would actually say that. It would say, uh, I think you better check on this guy. He's getting hurt. But as long as the guy was telling him to do it, they would say, okay, well, you're telling me to do it. And so I think there's this idea in human psychology where as long as you feel like an authority figure is telling you to do it, then you won't feel totally responsible for it. And I think that's what happened a lot with slavery with this, unfortunately. I'm sure tons of people in the slave trade had second thoughts or knew it was wrong. You'd but at least like to hope, right? You hope. But maybe they're thinking, okay, well, if I don't do this, then my family's going to starve and I got to make my money. And I think there's other examples of that. Or where did they, is there some way, shape, or form that they simply didn't know better? Like you talk about Columbus and the way he treated people and all of this, and I just don't know because I wasn't there. Yeah. You know, we can read about it. and But I think the point is, is, and it's this way through literature is to try and best understand humanity as best you can and make the world a better place as you can do it. Amen, brother. You know, That's why so we need people like you teaching. I'm working on it. Yeah. Back to the technology thing. I'm just curious because you were saying teaching about the Truman Show and these uh, stories where there's like this control of the world. Have you had any AI in the classroom? I don't like even. That? I So this is kind of the beauty of me being like the most electronic ignorant millennial on the planet i don't know i wouldn't even know where to start with it like, you don't have kids using chat gpt to type their papers or something like that i think not because i think that the way that i do assessments i'm not doing big five page essays and that kind of stuff we're doing give me a quick hit right now so it's not based a, on like this long prompt paper. it is so critically thought out and Honestly, even if they did cheat, it's the format of what they need to do and the way they use evidence and the way they explain the evidence. And I break it up in different ways that, I, I mean, if they could use chat GPT, is that what it's called? Chat GPT. Yeah, that's one of the AI assisted if writing If one of tools. these kids had the know-how of using that mechanism to answer the questions I'm asking them the way I want them answered, they're going to MIT. <laughs> you know? Well, I don't know from what I hear. I don't use it, but I hear that you can literally write in exactly what you want it to do and it will it will pump out the response yeah so you better you better get that i think i hear program. most i'm going back to school myself right now and you are yeah i'm getting my admin license to be a principal oh wow and cool. so to he when we it's been i got my master's i think 10 years ago or so and that wasn't a thing back then so now going back through that process again you can see the paranoia on professors because i'm sure it's a massive problem at that level yeah i mean you went to school before the internet was really pumping remember it was like coming you had out, to do yeah. a bibliography and it all wasn't that stuff? so i went to i went during a cool phase where like you were you were not allowed to use electronic sources yeah you could have like of 10 sources like one could be electronic even for or me like we weren't that. allowed to use any but what we did do was we would go find it online and then go find the p page number in the book. Ah, good idea. So that was, we were working this out, right? Yeah. And 
so I remember vividly doing that and being in an old timey library in East Tennessee and like, it was weird. <laughs> yeah. I remember being in school and in math class and asking the teacher, it's like, why do we have to do all this by hand? Why can't we just use our calculator? And she's like, well, Will, you won't always have a calculator in your pocket. And now flash forward. There it's you like, go. We right? do always have a calculator. I had in our a pocket. professor who wrote, <laughs> he wrote a book called the Citadel. And he was talking about screens like in this, he wrote this, I bet it was late nineties. What do you mean? Screens screens like, Oh, like uh computer screens. Like screens, phone screens. Yeah. Like phone screens. Again, I'm showing you something and we're on a podcast. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he was talking about things before tablets, even had, before a smartphone had ever come out. And it amazes me how smart some people are like looking forward and seeing it. Yeah. Is that kind of your obsession with the, dystopian futures i just think they're great books okay you know so it's like especially with bradbury it's it really is i appreciate his emphasis on the value of fiction because we could because i didn't used to really read that much fiction i like to read biographies a lot i like to read story of the reluctant triathlete Ah, there you ah, go. Nice plug. There you yeah. go. You like nonfiction stories. You know, I did. Yeah. I did until I really think when I started teaching Bradbury, it got me converted. And that's what sent me off on my Hemingway kick. And I found an era of writing that I really loved. And I loved the lost generation. And there's so much value to be get, taken from stories that people made up. Oh, 100%. You know. Well, the reason I love Hemingway, and I think I've told you this before, The Sun Also Rises Absolutely. was what got me into writing and reading. I hated English all through school until freshman year of high school. We got to read The Sun Also Rises, and I was like, okay, this is it. Very straightforward writing, fiction, but very relatable. And you kind of see, you're like, he did this. You know, he had experience in this. This is not just some made-up total world. He knew that guy that punched him in the face. Yeah, like he he, he's someone in here or he is everybody in here and he knew the person that did that. And you can see it's it's fiction, but it's, you know, based off something he had done. In fact, for that book, you know, he had actually taken that exact trip in his life going up to Pamela. You wanted to know what book. Lady Brett looked like the whole time you were reading that. You're like, she must have been. Exactly. Oh, man. Yeah, but then you see the movie and you're like, eh, I don't know if she I, I haven't like that. seen it. You can't do it, man. No. I don't think so. So I've been reading a book, and I haven't been reading it well. It's a fantastic book that I just keep getting busy with school and can't get into called They All Behaved, Everybody Behaving Badly. And it's the backstory to the story. Of what? The whole thing. The whole lost generation, all everything oh. in Paris, everything that was going on, who was who. What was that guy's name? Cohn or something like that? Robert Cohn. Robert yeah. Cohn. Who he was, who Lady Brett was. That's the super fact cool. that the fact that he was able to live that lifestyle because he was over there on Hadley's money, yep. that was one of my things I didn't know. Because yep. I was reading that, and I'm like, what do these people do? Like they're writers, quote unquote, but none of them work. No, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, they're asking for money from people, or you know, a lot of. Um, I've read a bunch of Hemingway biographies, and he borrowed a lot of money. But also, you know, it was so cheap to live back then. That's the other part too, right? It's like beer was out. literally like a nickel or whatever, right? And they had the cu- the currency conversion too. Yeah. Back in the day, so that was cool. But that's what I love too about that era. Yeah, the Fitzgeralds, the Gertrude Stein. The more there's so much information available about that time that you can read about all these artists and really figure out what they were doing. Doing when they wrote their books and see that reflected in the fiction and that yeah. takes it to a totally deeper experience for me yeah especially as a writer and I mean, that's I where i'm that's at so now. cool i'm just totally into reading about what i just read about and 
understand because we want to be in that world. We want because I mean I think the turning point of that story is they're all sitting at the cafe and on a whim they all decide to go to Spain. Yep. And they don't even like each other, <laughs> you know. And that's how free it was. And we all want to experience how that must have been. Yeah, the whole book they're just drinking and eating and traveling, yeah. and you're like, man, I could. I could go for a beer. Right. <laughs> yeah, that freedom, that spirit. And then in the book, I think I think he does work at a newspaper in the book too. I'm trying to remember how much he but he clearly doesn't spend a lot of time working. No, the opening scene is him being visited by Robert Cohn at his office yeah. when he's quote unquote working. But even in that he's like, Yeah, I wrote, then I read the paper, then I went for lunch and we had a couple glasses of wine and it's like these guys didn't get anything done. Well, and shortly after that, the next thing I read was a movable feast, and you get a little bit of that background. Yeah, and well, that's, that's a true story. Yeah, that's not fiction. But yeah. it's even like, but it goes beyond it. Like it just hearing about his completely first person, and I'm sure half made up interactions with F. Scott Fitzgerald. Yeah, and the classic. He's uh, so he yeah. like it's so condescending. Oh, of course. You know, well, Hemingway was kind of a jerk. Yeah, but it's like, I wonder how much he knew that the great Gatsby would be known as the great American novel and the, the Hemingway himself would not be responsible for it. Yeah. You know? Do you like the the great Gatsby? I love it. You do better than the sun also rises. No. See, I, I like Fitzgerald, but he's a little flowery for me. Like I, the reason I love Hemingway is cause he is that like terse, straightforward prose and it doesn't take a lot of effort. And he writes very much like a journalist, which I personally identify with. I, I like, I like, Fitzgerald's themes and they're fun. Like I, one of them that I do for a short story is winter dreams. Okay. You familiar I haven't with read that, that one. one no. It has to do with, a, it's kind of the same idea. It's the wealthy. You got the wealthy class. You've got the not wealthy class. And it's a kid that grows up. He grows up working on a golf course and he's surrounded by wealth around him. And there is a wealthy woman who is in that class and he falls in love with her, but he can never have her. And is the story so he he moti- he is motivated now to go and make a solid living and she is a trophy wife or trying to be her whole life she never really qualifies herself and they cross paths at this point to where he's going one direction and she's going the other and in the end he's lonely and she's lonely and i love the themes about wealthy america do they hook up or no they could have oh but they don't yeah she loves him and he it's a strange it's a strange crossing of people and and so i'm interested in the way he talks about that and it's and there's any number of stories that follow those similar themes and so those i find fascinating he was obsessed with money yeah he writes a lot of the gatsby obviously the rich boy the one you're describing uh but Everybody makes a big deal about Hemingway's drinking. Fitzgerald was wild. Well, he was more into the uh, what the hypnot- What's the stuff called? The absinthe. Absinthe, oh. wasn't he? He's wild. Some Hemingway biographies are pretty funny. They'll like have letters that Hemingway had written to other friends, and they're like, "Oh, Scott showed up last night, banged on the door at two a.m., tried to urinate on my stoop, and all this stuff." And and Zelda, she was interesting. Horrible influence on him. <laughs> Sounds like a fun girl to party with, but. Hemingway was always critical of her because thought that she was like wasting his talent, right. distracting him. Well, because he tells that story in a movable feast of how he tried to take him on a trip and he couldn't get away from her. Exactly. And I would have always enjoyed her perspective on that. Yeah. And in that book, I think they tell the story of where Zelda told Scott she had a small, he had a small penis. <laughs> so he like wants that. to show it to Hemingway yeah. to like, see if it's, it's not, I mean, it's like, do you think he was that insecure? 
Do you think Fitzgerald was as insecure as, as Hemingway made him seem? I think Hemingway embellishes because that's like his yeah. bravado. Because he wanted to be the secure of one. Course. And here's the great yeah. American author. And I think Hemingway knew. I think he knew it was – because he even acknowledges. He's like, I thought more of, of Fitzgerald than he thought of himself. And I think he knew because he refers to when he first read The Great Gatsby and he's like, this is pretty good. I think he knew that that was going to go somewhere. Yeah, and it made him jealous. Yeah, and he probably. always wanted to be the bravado of like African big game hunting, yeah. boxing, uh, fishing, manliness, right? Like he always challenged people to fights. But I think that was an insecurity too. Yeah, right? and see, I never really cared for most. The only African story that I really like of his was um, The Short Happy Life of Francis McCormick. Because oh, I think it's just excellent. hilarious. Dude, that's such a good story. My favorite part of it is how the, the, the guide is still badgering her at the very end. He's like, but it was a good shot though. She's like, shut up. Yeah, Dude, that is an incredible, <laughs> incredible story. I We're love just going to pretend like this was an accident. She's like, you get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Hemingway, I mean, do you think he was gay? I don't know. Because a lot of his, well, you know, there's speculation about that. And then in The Sun Also Rises, the main character has, you know, That's this right. war injury where his penis doesn't work, so he can't get it up. And then a lot of his short stories, especially in the later years, always, like, there's women in it that they're dating, but they always have, like, boy haircuts. And he takes, he goes out of his way to describe, like, how the girl cuts her hair to look like a boy. I think it was, like, The Cat in the Rain or one of the stories like that was... Uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of speculation that Hemingway was, like, very insecure because he was a homosexual, but he wanted to be this, like, bravado ladies' man. I think I've, I've just never – I've been more interested in the fact that his main character, who clearly was a projection of himself, yes, is everybody's favorite in every story. Yeah. And so, for me, whatever his insecurity was, I didn't worry about preference. I was more like, in every single story, he's the everyman, and – but there's some, I mean, if you wanted, like, if you were going to deep, one of my favorites that nobody else apparently liked was, what is it, Across the River and Into the Trees. I couldn't get into that one. I, yeah. and, you liked and it? I, I liked it differently because I loved how imaginative it was. But it was so weird, his relationship with the girl. It was, like, totally, like, daddy issues, and he was clearly okay with that. Yeah, he always uh, had women be very feeble. But she was, like, very. she acted like she was, like, 15. Yeah. You know, and so that was weird. But, I mean, I ended up drinking Negronis for the rest of my life out of that after that book. So. Oh, I love a good Negroni. Mezcal Negroni. Uh, well, they've at. got me over at Fidel's. At Fidel's, exactly. Fidel's yeah. is doing that. But it's uh, – I loved his affinity for classic hotels and the way he bossed uh, concierges around. In the writing? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just was fascinated by, like, how he collected – he got his mail – at hotels and what was it the when they found that stash of his old works in the basement of a hotel it just maybe was like what is going on at these hotels you know it's like well you got to think back then it was such a bigger operation there was no email like everyone was getting stuff delivered there yeah. it was like truly an, an all-inclusive service well, even in the sun also rises as they're traveling they send word to the hotel yeah the telegraph i couldn't whatever. imagine me like tell the hilton yeah, I don't even really understand what a telegraph is, but apparently it's like, <laughs> oh, they could just wire a note where yeah. it just it was kind of like early email or something like that. But it just could you imagine leaving your stuff and stashing it at a hotel? No, that's so. Well, maybe for the day after you check well, out. He did, but, I mean, that's yeah. where he left stuff for the ever. Just for a year. No, know? they found it. Like that's where they found a lot of his unpublished works. Like uh, I think that's true. If by 
what is the last one they just published post posthumously? Oh, I'm not sure. I, it was awful. I hated it. Um, well, he probably didn't get a chance to edit well, it. He would have never published it. Maybe that's so, why he didn't. Because <laughs> well, part of it was it, they was set in Africa, and he uses his wife Mary's name. Oh. And I'm like, he would have never. He probably changes the names at the end. He like writes the story with probably, his friends' names in it, just describes them, and then changes well, the names. Well, and Patrick published it. And I'm like, and so you know how uh, he acknowledges that he was not faithful and that he had an interesting relationship with marriage and da-da-da-da-da, and he justifies it. In this one, he is unapologetically cheating on Mary. Huh. And he... He just, he would have never published. Well, he had four wives. I know, but he would have, he, I don't, do you ever feel like he was? Well, he was pretty racy. Like, have you read Up in Michigan? Yes. And his, I remember in the biography, like his parents were horrified when he wrote that. And you read it now and, and there's nothing that bad. It's, it's very implied. But back in the 20s, it was a lot different. And basically he just meets this attendant who works at, a lodge or something and he ends up fucking her on the dock and then leaves her or whatever but it, it's it's not written very like aggressive it's just more implied a lot of it but that was like his parents and family like wanted to disown him when he wrote that up right. in michigan well but like case in point sun also rises he's clearly infatuated with whoever this whoever lady and i know that they've they know who she is lady whoever Brad, lady Brad, ashley, ashley She's a real person, and he's clearly enamored with her, but he was married to Hadley at the time Yeah, that this happened in real life. We know, but he's still – it's fiction. It's not – Maybe that was his whole, like, my penis doesn't work kind of metaphor for, like, I'm married. Yeah. So, like, I want to do it. Or maybe he actually didn't. He's, but he did not go so far as to openly state – you know, that's if you want to call it respect, it's not well, the most respectful thing. Iceberg theory was his thing, right? Yeah. Where he would only reveal a little bit. Yeah. And then, and as with writing, so many things get like academified, as I would say. It's like he might have just been like, oh, I'm just going to tell a little bit so that like I don't get myself in trouble. And then people come in and they're like, oh my God, what a theory this guy had to like how he wrote. And yeah. There's a South Park about that, oh, about how people interpret poetry and things oh. like that. But I still have my, uh, first copy of the sun also rises with my highlighting in it from my really? freshman year of high school i'm yeah. a giver awayer of books i especially I mean, with yeah. kids i could see that but this one was you don't I, have any books that are near and dear to you that from like the actual copy yeah like something you've had since you were younger that you really hold on nope, to. i've given them away Good i've got books that i have a absolutely like all the pretty horses i haven't read it oh it's unbelievable really yeah if i would i i almost moved to like nowhere like I had my dog say, so it's a story of, of a boy whose father dies. It's set in the fifties and the 14 year old boys, John Grady Cole is the main character and he and his friend, it's exist. I don't know if it's, they just, they switch it up. Like it's, well, what difference does it make anymore? Let's go South. And so they head South on horses to go get jobs and it's a true adventure. And it paints this just absolutely romantic picture of Mexican hospitality. All you want to do is just go south into Mexico and run into some random person's house. I love that. Because of the way. It's beautiful. And it, like, do you ever read Cormac McCarthy at all? I haven't, no. Oh, he just, it's absolutely, it's the opposite of Hemingway. He just paints pictures with his words. And mm. it's all imagery. And, and like, there's one of my favorite passages of it is they rode off into into this darkness and he paints this picture of darkness where a bell told where there was no bell. You know, you can hear the nothingness and 
they didn't write him under the stars, but amongst them. And he just, he's just like this, but the way he paints his Mexican hospitality, and then it turns into a great adventure. And all I wanted to do is take my dog and just go South with no purpose whatsoever. Were you inspired? Did you do it? No, hell no. No. (laughs) That's scary. (laughs) (laughs) No, it was, I was 23. And when I found out about how you had to quarantine your dog, Oh, yeah. To cross the border, I was like, I'm not doing that, damn. Yeah, but I, I thought about it. Yeah. I was like, that'd be, it's kind of like if I would have read The Sun Also Rises in my 20s, I might have moved to Paris. Yeah, just go. You know, it's kind of the same effect. And there was freedom in reading it, and it was beautiful. Yeah. And then so the rest of his stuff is so weird. How do kids take to reading now? They're, okay, so J.K. Rowling changed the game. Uh, Absolutely. Wh- really? Because, so when I got into teaching. Cause Harry Potter. A, yeah. As a kid, I didn't really read. I wasn't a reader. I liked Will Hobbs. Um, I liked Gary Paulson. I could read some. Gary Paulson, uh, The, the Hatchet. Hatchet. Yes, yeah. that's a good one. You know, My Side of the Mountain by Gene Craig. Had, those were my books, but those aren't like high level, you know? Yeah. And so I could read those things, but like I didn't read classics when I was a kid. So then I go to college and I come back and I'm a teacher and I expect kids to be the same way I was. And I realized right away, these kids read so much. And I think it's because really JK Rowling just turned the knob on adolescent literature. Cause by the time she's done, you get the hunger, you get the hunger games, you get oh, she Twilight. Wrote the hunger no, games she didn't. But she oh, inspired no. Okay. Yeah. It. Yeah. Who wrote the hunger games? Suzanne okay. Collins. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But this whole era of adolescent literature comes out, Percy Jackson, and just there's so much that didn't used to exist. That's a good point. As controversial as she is for whatever reason, I credit her for absolutely turning kids on to reading. And so it's, I think it's easier to get kids to read now, but that's part of my gig is I go in there first day. I'm like, I don't care if you like to read or not. You all love stories. And I'm going to turn you on to some stories. And we're going to have fun with these stories. And I'm going to totally trick you into reading it off of a page do they read in actual books Uh uh-huh really yeah oh that's great to hear yeah they're not reading on the ipad they're not uh, no whatever even a lot of times some of the short story stuff they'll read online okay like i'll give them pdfs but a lot of kids prefer print i still i can't read online no i'm a book guy i don't have i don't even like the kindle yeah it's i get the convenience of it 100 percent, but i love knowing where i am in the book I by just, the yeah. thickness of and my And the book goes and, with me. And, exactly. you know, I'm always carrying a book around with me. Uh, I did just do my first book on audiobook. I'd never done that before. How'd you like it? It was different. But this one was cool, though, because I actually, it was the, uh, the flower killing moon of oh. the Osage murders. And it's going to be a big Leo to, Leonardo DiCaprio movie coming out in the fall. Okay. And I was like, I kind of want to check this out. The story was better than the writing, so I'm kind of glad I listened to it. But you had, uh, I couldn't tell you who he is. He's a famous movie star with a great voice was reading it, so that was cool. What do you think of that that format? Because a lot of people, like podcasts, for example, people like them, but usually the hang-up is like, okay, when do I listen to a two-hour podcast? Yeah. Or when do I listen to a 10-hour book? And people, when they're driving, of course, or That's something. That's when I listen to this. Is that when you do yeah. it? Yeah. Otherwise, I only listened to, I've only ever listened to one podcast in my life, and it was you interviewing Priscilla Walker. That was the first one you've ever listened to? But And it got me thinking, like, what else does anybody possibly want to know about the world? Like, what, why, why do another one? You liked it? Oh, it's so good. Yeah, she's great. She's a national treasure. She knows everything about Palisade. But you do too, man. You're on the board of trustees. I don't know half of what she knows. She's, I have the coolest neighbor in the planet. You're on the board of trustees. So you're a Palisade bigwig too. How long have you been on the board? Uh, I think this is year five or six. Okay. There's no term limits? I am term limited. Oh, you are? Yeah, this will be my last term. 
do you have some big rally cry ready since it's your last year? Like as far as what we're trying to do? I don't know. Like go out with a bang. It's like your first couple of years, maybe you're more timid because you want to stay on. Oh, but got, now it's like. I mean, if I can brag, we got so much done. Tell us about it. So, I mean, the highway, the clinic. Um, the clinic's been great. You know, the, that's, oh, what that's it, so amazing. I mean, the big one that, that people aren't going to see, we talk about this a lot. It's like, because you want to do some things that you want, you obviously want to do what needs to be done. And you, our biggest thing that we got done that's getting done is the sewer connection to Clifton. Nobody wants to talk about that. It's obviously not a nice thing. It's not romantic. It's not pretty, but it saved us. I didn't know we had a sewer problem. We, what was the deal? That's it. So we had our lagoons down by the park that are expiring. And if had we not gone started to work away with it, we would have gotten massive EPA fines. Really? What so was wrong with it? Just not up to their, date? Yeah, it's just not up to their code. Was stuff standard. leaching into the river and stuff? That's a concern and the technology. Oh God, I think it. I jumped in near there paddleboarding the I've other day. I've done it all the time. But no, it, that's right. the concern with it. They're they're getting away from that. They don't want to, that system anymore. It just is what it is. Even if they're wrong, it, the fines are real. And so it was one of those things that if we wouldn't have done that, the cost, like it would have, the, the light at the end of the tunnel was a train kind of thing. So using some grants and Jana Hawkinson's been amazing at that. Clifton has wanted us to, they want to connect with us and it worked out and it cost a lot of money, but it saved even more. Nobody will ever see that or know about it or whatever. And it was just, it, that they talk about kicking cans down the road. Like that's one that we could have kicked down the road and left the town in major trouble. And we did not, and we got it done and we didn't really know how we were going to do it. A USDA loan helped. Are those ponds still in use now? No. And that's going to be the next thing is that's going to get repurposed into something. So all those ponds that used to be, they're like still this, doing it. They're, we haven't. Okay. You haven't in, switched yet. Yeah. We're in transition. When will right that now. happen? Uh, it should be within the next two years. Wow. And so then the next step is we get to repurpose that park. Make it more part of Riverbend. Yes. That'd be amazing. Yeah. So we're now we get to have a cool conversation, and I don't know if I'll still be on the board then of – like for me, I think when we think about our festivals, access down Logan is problematic. Yeah. And so for the big festivals, we could change access to both sides and work it – work two side entrances and take away the impact from the, on the, on the neighborhoods. That's a great idea. So, but that's fun. How do you guys get the word out of things that you've done? Like how do, cause we don't have any media here yeah, in Palisade. That's, oh, we, we used to have a Palisade Tribune and it was wonderful. Right. Yeah. No more. Right. Yeah. I mean, I guess you just hope people say nice things. And just talk to the water cooler. Yeah. <laughs> well, we know they're not going to share nice things on Facebook because nope, that's, that's only that. complaints. Yeah. No. So yeah, I don't know. I, I think, and nobody comes to the meetings either. You know, so it's like they don't really hear about it. I, a couple people listen online, but it's just, I know we're doing great things. You guys and, should think about starting a newsletter, just like a town newsletter. Yeah. I mean, I know they kind of have it, but not really, but things to talk about these projects so people know what you're doing. Yeah. And we've done, I think Janet's done a really good job of hosting community gatherings and short of town halls, but like opportunities for people like especially with the clinic a lot of people are involved with that yeah. conversation and designing it and the benefits of it highway six speaks for itself yep um, looks nice now you know and, and alberta's gonna get my one of my favorite things that we're gonna have done within the next year is a walking bridge over so is that really gonna happen that's happening i've heard a lot about that but I've seen no, like every time I see people painting lines, I get excited. But now I realize it's all broadband internet, right. which I guess is another huge thing you guys have done. Yeah. Right? 
Yeah. I'm, I'm the I'm the youngest person on. No, I think Nicole's younger than me now. I'm one of the youngest people on the board, and I have the least to do with broadband. Yeah, I don't really know what it means. They all talk about it, and they're like getting excited about it. I'm like, I I'm not. I don't have a video game system. Yeah, I'm like, my internet com- works fine. I don't have a computer <laughs> in my house. Yeah, I um, can load ESPN easily. It's yeah, fine. I don't. <laughs> we don't. We don't have the internet, or we don't do anything with computers around here. So. I couldn't care, but I know it's big for for people and who so work from exciting. home and yeah. doing the zooms and all that. So that's one that I just have to trust. Hey, you say it's a big deal. It's a big yeah. deal. But tell me about the bridge. So it's going to be so as it is right now. When you cross the canal, the Highland Canal, it's pretty sketchy. Very sketch. And almost got hit there several times. Yeah, I'm amazed that nobody's been dumped into the canal by somebody. Yeah. And so now we're going to have a walking bridge over that canal, and I am pumped about that. Is there going to be sidewalks too? On a, like on Alberta? Yeah, there's down? a whole project all the way down to First Street. Wow. So that's coming soon. So what's what's the status now? Like it's, the money is secured? We just talked in the – yeah, we it's on the budget for right for 2023. Okay. That's like one of the next things happening. When will construction start oh, next well, year or this year possibly? Those things aren't as easy, honestly, to say. Okay. It used to be like I remember pre-COVID, it was easier to say like it's this, but it still seems like everything is harder to – pin down yeah so we put it on a year basis and last i knew we had a budget meeting on tuesday it was still labeled as 2023 okay so, so maybe this fall after the busy so. summer That's season do it for. now would be a little congested right. with hot. everybody yeah do it in the winter that could be cool that would be great and then if they can just beautify it a little bit i know that that canal the walkway is privately owned i think by the water irrigation yeah. people but that looks horrible half the time well that bridge is going to get replaced at some point it's the almost, car bridge. Yeah, it's because that's another thing that is going to – but, I mean, that belongs to CDOT anyways. Mm. But our problem as it affects the town is if they have to take a summer and take that bridge out, what what's gonna that going to do? do to access? So Would it take that long? I think so. This has got to be like the big dig, man, or like Carmageddon. Well, like fines for going over, right? What I talked about two years ago was finding another access point across that that ties into Main Street. And then it would also take some of the semi-trucks out of town. So make turn left on Wine Valley yes. Road, go down past the Golden Gate, and then turn right at a yes. different point. And that so that be, yeah. I think you do that before you replace that bridge. Now, with that said, that's a big – when we talk about big ideas, we haven't talked about impacts yet. And every time you come up with a big idea, somebody's got a problem with it for a good reason. And yeah. so right now that's just a big idea. That's a good point that you raised because I think a lot of people – when you see the complaints on Facebook or just hear it around town, they think that things can happen quickly. And they're like, why isn't the town acting? Talk a little bit about the process. Like when ideas birth, what has to happen? Things, you have to go through the process. Case in point. So one of the big things that's going to be happening in the next few years is a roundabout at Alberta and Highway 6. Oh, nice. Okay, And it's hard to get CDOT to do anything. But then when they get going on it, they move pretty quick. And so what we've found a whole bunch of problems with their design that have to do with access points for people that live on the front of roads. Okay. And those people have been rightfully frustrated and yeah. we've been trying to get CDOT to slow down. And finally, Janet, again, she's brilliant. We, we are so lucky to have her drove them around and showed them like face to face. This guy that lives right here in order to get to the interstate is going to have to do this loop de loop thing. And they're like, okay, we get it. Yeah. I mean, they made the same mistake in front of Taylor elementary, getting rid of that turn lane. And we told them about it and it's like, that's oh, too late. They're like, yeah. Come on. Yeah. You know, and 
So they mistakes do get made, but you try, it takes a long time because you want to eliminate as many as possible. So as much as people complain about it, like in some of these cases, we wish that it would have taken a little bit longer. Yeah. And um, obviously you're dealing with humans that have jobs that are assigned to do other things. So you got to have the people in place to do the construction. They can't be everywhere at once. Yeah. You know, that takes time. There's tons of planning. There's tons of engineers getting involved. You know, you talk about a road, you got to get it surveyed. You got to get engineering in. You got to look at all kinds of things. And there's and a legal in, process. And in that, that case, I know that there's some conservancy stuff, you know, like access along orchards. And how is that going to affect properties that have now have a paved road that go by them that need to be considered? Right. I don't know. Yeah. When someone has an idea or a complaint, what's the best avenue for them to go? Should they come to the meeting and just voice it in the comments and say, hey, have you guys thought about this? I mean, sometimes people just don't feel like they're heard. I'm ge- I, guess, I would so. say that given the lack of public comment, and I'm not, you know, what we're not supposed to do is be like, yeah, come get mad. Yeah, you know, you don't want that. We're not supposed to do that. Yeah. However, like nobody comments, nobody says anything. Yeah. It would not bother at least me. I can only speak for myself. Right. I would be okay if more people came to public comment and I actually kind of look forward to it no matter what, if it's good or bad, it's at least good to hear it as opposed to read it. And people start like people get carried away online and they get emotional and things start to pile on top of each other. And nobody ever comes and says that stuff to the board. They don't even say it to your face when they see you out in public. No, you know, and I think that's just the nature of how we are with a computer. So to answer your question, absolutely. Come, send emails to board members. We get, we do get emails. We do read them. We don't get very much. People say very little to us. So you're not getting death threats or anything. No. Okay, I, good. I mean, <laughs> it's all public knowledge. You just foia this, right? I just, what? You just foia this freedom of information. Act. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. That's what I'm, well, I'm a journalist, right? Don't forget yeah. it. That's my email. There it is. You know, nothing in there. Nope. But something about a baseball game, daily Sentinel. I just, I just subscribed. Yeah, I'm getting the paper, paper delivered again. It's a, it's a good paper. Well, someone's got to support journalism around here. Yeah. So yeah. it's like, you know, there is nothing in there from very little. I get, you know, I won't say who sent me about what, but there's one thing in there about a thing. Yeah. It's nothing that's in. And that's the other thing to be known is understand who can do what, you know? So the, one of the most recent complaints that's on Facebook has to do with Weed control on Third Street. Yeah, I was reading that. So if you were to come to the board, there's very little direction we can give. And we have legal restraints too. Like we can be sued by staff. So if we were to be breathing down staff's neck, if I individually were to go to Tom Kaufman and start telling him what to do, he can sue me. Wow. Because that's how we have a an order of the way things go. So like we are limited in what we can do. We approve things especially budget issues. We approve zoning things. We can be judicial when it comes to land use and all that other stuff. But in terms of, you know, we are the boss of the town manager and the town manager is the boss of everybody else. Interesting. She is fortunately wonderful. If you go to her respectfully, she's very effective. She is a human being and she does not deserve to have people screaming at her. Of course not. Especially no. as great as she's been. But that's, you can talk to her. Screaming is never a good way yeah. to get what you want. You can talk to her. You can email her your concerns. And she actually has a great ability to be able to go and then tell somebody, code enforcement, hey, go take a gander. Yeah. And it does, I do, in some cases, especially with code enforcement, they won't do anything unless you say something. 
Like they're not out just trying to find people who's got a weed in their yard. Yeah, I don't know about that. Well, I, I think a lot of Palisade residents would disagree with that. With in the, a lot of cases, that's because somebody made a complaint. You think someone's neighbor complains yes. that they have a weed in their yard? That's how that goes. I, I disagree with that. That's how they explained it to me is that, and more often than not, if he's going and putting the naughty slip on somebody's door, it's because somebody called and complained. Okay. So. I, I respect you for saying that, but I, I disagree. I don't know yeah. if that's true. We'll have to have Tom on sometime and see what the word is. But uh, who else? I also think he does a fantastic job as well. I love Tom. Yeah, yeah. I love Tom. Got no problem with it. But, you know, I just – with the, getting back to the Facebook thing, it's like people should put more of their energy into writing you yeah, respectfully or writing the town with concerns than to, like, bitch on Facebook. Right? One of my favorite lines from Ted Lasso is, be curious, not judgmental. Mm. And I think in the world as a whole, if we asked more questions and drew fewer conclusions, we'd all be smarter for it. You know? Yeah, that's fair enough. Ask and, and accept an answer. You know, what can we do? Bikes. Okay? Our cops cannot go pull over bicycles because they suspect they've been drinking. They can't pull over a car because they suspect they've been drinking. That's a violation. You have no evidence, right? Yeah, you have to have some You reason. have to break a law to get that that's how the constitution works right you know even if you're driving down the street you have to commit a traffic violation for them to pull you over so with these bikes just because they're a part of a bridal party you can't assume that they're wasted. that they're hammered yeah so what do you want them to do you know and so it's like if you ask that if you were to ask chief stanford hey what do you do about that it's it's complicated yeah you know so it's like all these things that I think there's better conversations that could be had as in as opposed to just jumping out there and attacking. Yeah. Why did you decide to get on the board in the first place being a teacher and having all this other stuff? You mean you deal with parents and kids all day and now you have to deal with. Once again, it comes back. It's all Priscilla's fault. Oh, Priscilla's yeah, fault. It's Priscilla's fault. And she she wrapped you into it. So um, – I think the way it works with a lot of people is you start off by complaining about an issue and then somebody tells you to put your money where your mouth is. And so when the, um, when the gas station, the Golden Gate was coming in, they were going to put a massive sign out there and I complained. And so I rallied a bunch of support and we kind of went in there and we talked and did the thing. You go do that and all of a sudden now people think you should be involved with something and Priscilla's like, you should run for the board. And, and and when she says you should run for the board, it's kind of like an offer you can't refuse. Yeah, it's a nice endorsement. Yeah. Well, no, it's more like I better. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I did, and it worked out. Okay. And so, and I'm super proud of everything that we've gotten done in that time. And you had asked earlier what's next. Right now we have our staff so bogged down. I don't know if there will be any big ideas coming in the next two years. No. So we're looking at small things. We're looking at smaller ways that we can – sidewalk kind of stuff paving roads but in terms of like we had got highway six down we got the clinic down we've got all the sewer things happening right now eventually then in in cdot will be more involved with the uh roundabout but it's like our town staff is is stocked full of projects yeah so what would you like to personally see i mean board board aside like in the future of palisade what do you kind of envision because you grew up here right yeah where did you grow up? Uh, like, just I grew up actually in the buffer zone, so I was a thirty-six and three tenths road G and seven G and four tenths. I okay. was out there in the country, so not in the town, but culturally Palisade. Yeah, um, you've seen a lot of change. Yeah, it it's a di- I don't know. It's I feel like all the and this is controversial, but I feel like all of the changes have made it more the same. 
You know, all, say that again. All the changes. All have made of the it more changes the same. have made it more the same. Okay. So explain that. When I was a kid, and when all these people like rain nostalgic about this small town. Okay, obviously peaches have always been the thing. Uh, in my lifetime, the wine grapes have come along in the early eight, or late eighties, and it didn't really become a big thing until ten, fifteen years ago. Yeah. But as a kid in this town, it was quiet, very little happening. Um, and the whole valley is blown up, you know, like, oh my goodness, so many people. But in that time, we could have turned into a bedroom community with nothing but subdivisions and all that. So as the tourism thing starts coming along and people start coming here for the wine and people start coming here for the peaches, the tourism gives value to the trees and the vineyards. And so because of that, the people that own that land have a reason to keep it as orchards and vineyards. And that's kept it the same. Yeah. You know, do we have more people that we share it with? We do. That's different. This didn't used to be a tourist town. Um, when did the influx of tourism start? Probably 10, 15 years ago. Oh, so that recently. I think so. And yeah. maybe I'm wrong on that, but I think that's when it makes sense. I mean, you had the pe- people coming for peaches, but not like now where it's a no. destination. And But I think the wine's been a huge part of that, though. 100%. But I think also, and I don't know when this started, maybe it has something to do with the History Channel and their focus on food, but I think people are enamored with where it comes from, especially city people. Like, I want to go to the Tabasco factory. Yeah. You you know, I've always said, I was like, I bet that place is great. Yeah. You know, so it's like, I think I want to see where it all comes from. Um, And maybe they, I mean, I grew up getting to, I shouldn't say getting to, my family butchered cattle. They did? Yeah. Yeah. I have family out in Fruita and that was kind of a family gathering that we would do and we would get our meat for the freezer. You would and, butcher it uh-huh. with them? Yeah. Really? In yep. Fruita? That was a thing. What would you do? Um, I was mostly responsible for skinning. I mean, you had like four or five of us. You would skin the cows? Mm-hmm. Very nice. Yeah. I mean, I didn't say, it's not a big operation. It was like two. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because yeah. in a day, it wasn't like we were out there feedlotting them. Yeah. No, so, but off, it was yeah. for us. It was our beef and that was how, and we filled the freezer with it and, you know, so I know where the food comes from. That's I grew a really up pack- cool way to live. I grew up picking peaches. I grew up packing peaches. I've done every job in the peach orchard except for owning the orchard. Mm. So I know about that. So to me, that's I, I love agriculture. I think it's great. But it's something to come out and see it if you've never been around it. Yeah. Like I wish I could take every traveler that comes out here out, if they really want to see it, out into a peach orchard at 5 o'clock in the morning to see hummingbirds fly. That's the best part of the day. Really? It's great. They're... Even now, like with the peaches or in the spring when they're yeah. flowering? Really? Just, yeah, because they, well, they, you'll see a lot of people, like James Sanders has great pictures of hummingbird nests on peaches. Oh, that's so cool. And they're cool. super cool. I've never seen those. Yeah, they're pretty neat. Well, because you see little, there's, well, I should grab a peach on the thing, but you'll see little dots on them. And that's from them sucking the nectar? Yeah. I didn't know they ate peaches. Uh-huh. Really? Yeah, they'll poke them and. And suck the nectar out. Yeah. I or, had no or idea. Or any kind of, I guess, fermenting, or not fermenting, uh. What is it the bees do? Pollinating. Hmm. Well, pollinators kind of like you'll see the bee stings on on uh, watermelons. I've never seen you know, that. Whatever. That's so yeah. Cool. Yeah, I didn't know that. So yeah. Do you think that we'll be able to keep Palisade the way it is going forward? As long as we keep doing things the way we've been doing it. That board meeting last year was. I mean, you Which said one that, was that you say that no one really comes to meetings, but that one was packed for. Um, 
right across the street here when oh, they, for the, were, yeah. they were going to put that little mini development You in. know, people are scared about high-density housing. Yeah. And that, and that was very well stated in the community plan. So now that we have that game plan done, that gives us legal strength to do the will of the people. That's why that was so important. And so we haven't even gotten to the point where, where zoning is going to be affected by that. We haven't even started that process. What do you mean by that? So we can start to reevaluate zones and we'll have all kinds of legal advice and we'll get all kinds of stuff to really truly enact that plan so that the, the people of Palisade get what they want. And we haven't started that. From, That's going to be great. From my understanding with the Palisade game plan, it would offer more protection for ag land. Yes. Would you agree with uh, that? Absolutely. So when you say change Because zone, that's what people want. Correct. Yes. yes. And so when you're saying changing zones, you're not meaning changing ag land to development. Absolutely you mean not. the other way. Right. Possibly. You could, sue, you could borderline sue us for doing the opposite because of what that says. Because that's a legal document. For the most part. At least it's justification. So like when we have to make decisions- we, are, we have these protocol that we have to follow. And because we have so much voice in that, that can become a basis for, does this reflect the values of town? That's a big one. And so now we have it. So it's there. Ingrained, it's out what there. are the values of town? And we can base decisions off of that. And if you don't base the decision off, it's like, why didn't you? You have right. to have and a pretty good reason. Yeah, and that's to. one thing people need to know. Like, I'll say one. I wasn't a big fan of the subway. Is it coming in still? Well, I don't know. That's their choice now. They All we do is approvals. I was not a huge fan either. You know, but we get legal advice. We get these criteria. And what we do isn't always what we want. Okay. So it let's, let's, let's we, slow down a bit because okay. I think this is good for people here. Like, yeah. tell us about as much as you can because I know that you are a board member and you have some restraints. But tell us how this process goes. I mean, it's not like you can sit up there and say, I hate Subway, so I'm going to be against it. They right? could sue us if we did. Really? You know, so okay. that we have to be very careful with that. Um, so, so like what happens when this, this person comes to you and says, hey, I want to I franchise this subway here on this land that they own? Is it zoned correctly? Okay. So Case first it's about the zoning. And so there can be a zoning change. And then we have our criteria that we have to follow is in terms of is this appropriate or is it not? And then you can get into things like variances. Like can we, will we make an exception for this? Is it good or bad? conditional use permits is there a use that they want to do that is not within the framework of this zone but we will give them a conditional right to do it and that's all what they call quasi-judicial and because of that we are very limited in the framework of what we have to make decisions on and if i'm trying not to get too specific in examples but when a in the last two years a certain applicant got very quick approval on something that somebody else did not get quick approval on because they did traffic studies. They brought their traffic analysis. They checked every box to the point where we were like, I'm going to, they're going to sue us if we don't say yes. Oh, like we, they, they made their case so cut and dry. Their application was flawless. Now, can you trust their analysis or do you have to do your own? Well, I mean, when their person, well, you can be, you can be analytical case in point. Good question. We had a uh, another applicant who came out and they did a traffic study showing that on North River Road, 
there was minimal traffic. And we looked at the date and like, you did that during quarantine. Oh, okay. Right? See, that's what I was we saying. We like, like pointed our finger at it. We're yeah. like, you're good, you. We see what you did there. Yeah, because so, data can say whatever yes. you want depending so we on are, how you So we are it. analytical. All right, good. You know, and we look at stuff. That was hilarious, but That was so funny. Were they embarrassed? They went away. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, <laughs> that, I was, bet. that was the end of that conversation. Nice try, buddy. Well, and so you talk about like the Golden Gate. Yeah. So when they were doing their sign, they made it seem like there was a forest of trees in that land and that you had to get that sign up to like a gazillion feet in the air so that you could see over those trees. And I came to him and I'm like, I live there. It's a barren desert. Yeah. There are no trees. There's no trees, buddy. Computer, you, you put those in there and they're like, yeah, we did that. Yeah. Gotcha. (laughs) I was like, if it would have been me, that would have been the end of the conversation. Like trust has been broken. You are clearly manipulating the data. I'm not dealing with you. If that was me. Yeah. I wasn't on the board at that time, but that's part of what made me run okay. because I was like, I want to be able to do, I feel so helpless right now. I want to be able to say we need to deal with good brokers. Yeah. And now that's, I mean, I think that's awesome. And we owe you gratitude for that because you're an actual resident who is saying, Hey, like, no, I live here and I, I see this and I see what you're doing and I'm going to yeah. catch you in it. Does everyone on the board have to live in Palisade? Yes. Cause I know like certain one, people within the one square mile. Okay. Yep. Within the oh, with uh, they can't even live in Orchard Mesa right. or something. Oh. It has to be within the town limits. Interesting. Yeah. Because I know other positions are not that way, like in the planning commission right. and things like that. People can live outside. That example right there is great because a lot of times people are just they have the instinct to oh well the town is not out you know they don't have my back and it's like you have our backs like you 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 know you've called these people out for that because you live here and it's yeah. your community too. Well, and I think that's I think why it's worth I, recognizing. I think I get some support on that because I am this you know i am palisade this is my this is all i got this is my home and i and i think it is good to know that we feel what everybody else feels we see it and you know we all we all love this town very much so what's up with the subway what's the latest i have no idea so they like we've approved basically they're allowed to be there whether or not they do it's not that's not our is there a a statute where it runs out where they have to reapply we could have well because they didn't really get any to i'd have to look back I don't remember. This was a long time ago, right? Like a year and a half ago. Or well, something. and it just is not the most important thing that we're looking at right now. Like we're right into budget. Oh, I'm not suggesting that no, you so would look at it, but like, why aren't they building? Like they I, went through this whole process and they tortured us. Yeah. And now they're, clue. now they're just waiting or like, I'm a teacher. I don't know anything about money. I don't know why they are the way they are. I wonder if it would, if it runs out, like if at some point they, or I mean, is the approval good forever? We didn't. Yeah, we didn't. If I'm remembering right in that situation, I don't think it was anything that was conditional. So like 15 years from now, they could still be good to go? Maybe. Wow. As far as I know. I'd have, yeah. to, re, I'd have to take another look at it. Because there are certain things that maybe we made a variance or an exception for that might have impact on somebody. Yeah. And we would be justified to say, look, you're not doing anything. We're going to undo that thing so somebody else can do something. I don't recall there being anything like that that we – got in anybody else's way to do anything. And now the game plan came after that. Yeah. Right. So if, what do you think? And this is just, you can, if you don't want to speculate, you don't have to, but I'm curious, like if it were flipped where the game plan came first and then the subway applied, do you think that the game plan would have prevented them from getting approved? I don't think so. Cause it was still zoned correctly. Okay. You know? Yeah. And that gets, man, you're talking about corporate lawyers at that point. If you're like trying to, you know, if, 
if Subway wants to come in, they're going to find a way to do whatever. You're, you'd have to get some pretty hefty legal stuff going on to be able to prevent any of that from happening, I think. I know, but just the game plan, I'm, I'm assuming, is like a lot about local businesses and yeah. how do we, and we can barely support the businesses we have now without the competition. Now, if you put a subway up there, people are just getting off the highway. I mean, if it were me, like, town. I always wish that I had all the money in the world so I could buy preventative properties. Yeah, 100%, man. You know, that would yeah. be the real way to do it is, and I know some people that I feel like can- We need a good Samaritan. Some way, shape, or form have done that, and I appreciate what they've done. That's probably the only realistic way you can stop corporate America from doing what they want to do. Are you worried about that? If a subway comes in, then a Burger King would be next. No, because where are you going to put it? I don't know. Just keep going right past the happy camper and the next buy that next piece of land. You run into some pretty decent limitations though. Cause like I said, I think it, you get into some conservation easements. If you keep going that way, you, there's some infrastructure issues. We've already run into some issues with those pipes and sewage and stuff Okay. that we've had to go and remediate. So I don't know. Could Wendy's come downtown or do we have a pl- do we downtown? Have, yeah. Do we have rules against I'd that? Have to, I'd have to take a look at our code okay. and see what's in place in terms of that kind of stuff. So you do run into traffic issues. And so you could make rulings on that. You could say like, we don't have the ability to accommodate that kind of traffic stuff. And you can probably say this isn't going to work because yeah. of that. Obviously we can't make that statement up by the interstate. Yeah. Because um, like Fruta, they have yeah. a lot of fa- more corporate chains than we do. Um, obviously, Junction. Yeah, they. Yeah, we'd have to take a look at the code, and we, like I said, in that situation, that's probably where that conversation would go to: is how does it affect traffic? How does it affect the? Because that that's one of your exceptions that you can make for things: is does it have a negative effect on everybody around it? Would it theoretically ruin downtown? Could you make that argument? Maybe. You've yeah. Got to be careful because. If it's just really you're masking an anti-Burger King opinion, those, that's what their attorneys are there to stop. But what does that doing. mean, right? Because I remember that with the subway. Like I remember the mayor in the meeting was like, we can't discriminate against a restaurant. Right. And I'm thinking, is Subway a restaurant? But okay, you know, I'll give you the benefit. <laughs> you remember what – did you ever watch The Daily Show when Jon Stewart would yeah. make fun of Arby's? It's I, technically food. Yeah. <laughs> that's like their slogan we know wendy's now it's like quality is our recipe yeah. that's their slogan it's like okay but i remember he said that and i was thinking okay but isn't there something to the idea like with the town plan well we're not anti-corporate but our goal is to s- support local small businesses because the people that run those businesses live here that's their livelihood yeah. and if we just have a downtown full of whatever then a lot of people you know it's just it loses its charm it loses our Everything you're saying, people come here because they want to see where their food comes from. They also come here because it's different than Denver. Right. It's not Silverthorne that's full of corporate chains. They come here because it feels like an authentic town. My argument would be, well, we're not anti-corporate. We're not anti-commercial business. We're not anti-Wendy's. Yeah. We're just pro-local tourism and, and we're I'd, pro-local town feel. Yeah, I su- I think that's a good position to be on. You just you have to be very careful making quasi-judicial decisions based on that kind of a sentiment you know it's just oh it's easy for me to say it now yeah right but you're on you're like yeah. you said you guys have this a lot is of legal why challenges i mean those are face. those are hard decisions and the, was that the, the most stressful do you think back of the most stressful issues you've dealt with while your, your time on the board was that that one? was one that i didn't enjoy yeah i mean there were some there was you know dealing with different pot interests was hard uh the marijuana yeah yeah there was some and I got to be careful on these because we kind of 
have an understanding. It's a, I call it a norm amongst ourselves that let's say I vote against it and it, and it passes. I agree. I'm not going to go trash the decision because it's the will of the board. Yeah. You know, you and have so, to go along with it, and yeah. we do that. And so it's like, I, there have obviously, there've been some things, there haven't, haven't been a whole lot of things that I've voted against that passed. There's a couple of them that I'm like, we spent way too much money on that, but yeah, so be it. It might be once you're not on the board, you may find it's even better because now you can unleash the full force of your opinion and I activism. I probably won't do that. No, you won't. <laughs> you're over it. You're <laughs> yeah. But yeah. you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. if you're not tied to anything, you can say whatever you want and, and go for it. Yeah. But when you have to be a professional board member, right? Yeah. Then. I mean, I, I, I have a lot of trust in the way that the town functions under Janet. If it was somebody else that I didn't know as much about, I might be more critical, but it's, you know, more often than not, even if I don't like it, it's been with the best of intentions and it's been with really great thought and she's thought it through and she's very detail oriented. So like if I was not on the board and they were doing something, I'd be, it would take quite a bit for me to be really outraged at something that was going on just cause I, I have so much faith in her ability to run the town. Yeah. So, well, that's great. When's your term up? Uh, I think, what do we got an election coming up next year? I don't know. I think so. You tell me. I think we got, I think we got an election coming up in one or two years and then I'll have two years after that. So I'm almost into, Oh wait. So you, I thought you were terming out this year. No, I'm at the beginning of, if you were to look at it, like, you know, they do the the beginning of the the president. Okay. So we're heading into like, what would be a midterm for me? I see. Yeah. But you don't have to be, you're not up for it though. No. Okay. Nope. I don't have to run again. How long are your terms? Four years. Four years. And what's the max? Two terms. Eight years. Yeah. That's a long time. Yeah, it's been a minute. I was yeah. young and skinny when I started ah, this. You can still be young and skinny. I will be when I'm done. <laughs> ah, you feel like it's stressed you out? It takes time. Yeah. Like what do you it, have to do between meetings? So like, you go to – we're all on other committees. So, like, I deal with the chamber. Um, okay. I go to the chamber meetings. I'm in contact with the chamber. I've been – I was on the 521 Drainage Authority. What else have I done? I was a part of the Mesa Land Trust – so you have to bounce around to all these other committees. Yeah. So you're going to multiple meetings. A you month. go to you go to meetings, and then you're just in communication with stuff. We volunteer. We go to events. We do things like so. It's and then it's just mentally you're involved. Yeah. So you're thinking about it all the time. Yeah. How do you have the energy for this between school, the board, kids, you know, everything? I have no idea. You just do it. Yeah, I think that's it. I think you just do it. Put I'll, your maybe I'll be roll. bored when I'm done. I don't know. I doubt that. So Maybe he'll read more Hemingway. I'll go back. I'll get back into fly fishing and do that kind of stuff, and I'll read more. Yeah, there you go. So no, it's but it's it's not so bad. It it gets it gets tiring in the middle of a school year, like when you're on those grind months, like October and February. Those two specific months. Yeah, because those are the humps in the school year. Oh, so like I March see. March in a school year is brutal. But isn't that spring break? Well, the, you, before you get there. Okay. You know, but like October, it, we don't have a break in the other than Thanksgiving, but so you've been going once you get to October and there's data behind it, like behaviors peak. That's the toughest time of year. Yeah. And so let's say if, in, if we were doing a lot of board meetings or something or whatever, but again, it's, it hasn't been so bad lately because when we were really meeting all the time, because we were building this stuff and planning this stuff, demolition of the high school, all of those things that was exhausting. Yeah, what's next with that, the high school? It, well, it's 
the clinic and now we got to just finish. Isn't there something behind it though? Well, that's the gym. Oh, the gym. Okay. And they're just, what are they going to do putting with that? that back together? Basically. Is that going to be for public use? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it'll be for rent and it'll be for usage of whatever people can figure out. Like, can we have a weekly basketball game there or Probably, something? Yeah. Yeah. Like a, yeah, that kind of thing. There is a basketball point. court. People are, people have talked about maybe doing some musical stuff. Um, it'd be cool to do like an actual gym. Like uh, Mesa Fitness, not that big, obviously, but like a Palisade gym that people could get a membership to. Yeah, there wouldn't be out. room for that in there, but not big enough. You'd, well, you'd lose the floor. Ah, okay. You know, and we just spent a bunch of money to bring back the the gazebo bleachers, not the gazebo, the balcony bleachers. Oh, really? So, yeah, you'll have to go take a peek in there when it's is all it, done. Is it? Oh, it's not open yet, though. No, but if you call ahead, Janet will show you. Okay, and people were taking bricks from there, right? Yeah. I didn't get one, I but get I don't bricks. have a lot of connection to it. I so. went to sixth grade there, and you know my family all went to high school there, so that's cool. That used to be okay. That was yeah. the old high school. All right, all right. And then after it was a high school, it's been condemned thirty-seven times or something like that. What? Well, until they don't need it condemned. How anymore. long was it vacant? Actually, a long time, probably twenty years, maybe. Twenty years? Yeah. I didn't realize that. It's yeah. So it was. I was in middle school back in the mid '90s, and we were using it as a sixth grade building. Like I said, so it was condemned, uncondemned. It's kind of like you ever watched The Office? Yeah, of course. You know, like Shun, Unshun? Shun, Unshun? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like Dwight and Jim. Like, Shun, Unshun. That's kind of how it felt. You got a lot of pop culture references. I like like those shows. They're good shows. (laughs) So, and what's funny about it is the part of it, when we toured it right before it was demolished, really, or before we made the decision, that that was convincing because that place was, it was so nothing left. But the funny part of it was, was the part of it that was still in great shape was the basement that had been condemned for 30 years because of asbestos. Oh. Like that whole What's basement. What's down there? It was, a, it was the locker room, and I think there was a weight room down there for football. Okay. But See, it was also, there was a gym. But it was also a bomb shelter. What's in there now? It's buried now. Oh, they filled it in? Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, it was part of like landfill now. Ah, so all that's left is the, is there's no basement underneath the the gym now. It's kind of crazy thinking back in the day, you know, asbestos. I remember my grade school had this dirt basement. The floor was all dirt and we used to have a haunted house down there and it was super creepy, but you'd go in and walk in on this dirt floor and we would set up all these little different rooms and, and sections where you could go in. And by the end of the day, we would come out like coughing up dust because if you're working down there and it was totally fine. And I've never even, I don't really, I learned a lot about it through the, what do you call it? Remediation. And I don't know. I just, I'd never really understood it until I had to, until I had to understand it. And it's a pain. It's a lot. Like it touches everything. And it's like when they come in and inspect it, they're like, it's in the windowsills. It's in this. And and yeah, I I never want to be a part of another project like that again, because it's just that's stressful. Do you see a big difference between yourself when you first came on the board and now? I think I was pretty, I'd like to say I was humble and realistic about how that was going to go. And I, God bless it. I had Roger Grandin on my side and he's so useful. Like you talk about Priscilla knowing a lot. Roger knows a lot. And he, he was a very good guide in that in terms of what you can and can't do and how this really works. I think people make the mistake of coming in with an agenda and that's just not how board work works. Like, if I wanted to get all this stuff done, it wouldn't have mattered. Right, because that's your agenda. That's my agenda, and there's seven of us, and there's money. And there's, and and frankly, that's just, you 
you, we're not Congress, you know, like we're not coming in and giving profound speeches. We're really more than anything. We are the overseer of a town manager who, once you put that person in place, you got to trust them. You can't micromanage them. There's a certain County commissioner who's kind of under fire right now for micromanagement. Oh, and you can't do that. You, we, we can get sued for it. That's a hostile work environment. You have to hire that person. You have to trust them. Now we do get oversight. We get review. And we can have those conversations inappropriate. Like we can say, I'd like to see a little more of this. I'd like to see a little more of that. We can put forth our opinions. And if everybody agrees with them, that becomes the agenda. Right. But I can't steamroll. I want this and this. When you guys are making decisions, do you just follow your own opinions? Or do you, because I remember where there was one issue, uh, whatever it was back in the day, and we had just met and I asked you about it. And you're like, hey, look, I, I, respect you, but I can't talk to you about this because I can be, your text messages can be subpoenaed, yes. all this stuff, right? So that's quasi-judicial. So you got to be careful. Yes. You can't talk about things. Then how do you get a beat for what people, your constituents want? Because you are kind of elected as a representative. You're, so how do you, you how do you manage it, that? You hear it fresh and firsthand at the same time as the rest of the board. And you're kind of like on a jury. Yeah, but like when you're, when you're up there, right, you're hearing the subway pitch and you're thinking, all right, this is what I think. And so now that's what I'm going to do. Or are you thinking, okay, let me go and talk to the people of town and see what they want and then come back and have a, an opinion of the people rather than just my own. Like how does, how does it work? Well, on that's this how public comment works, you know? So, so like wait. you're limited to what you get in that scope because you don't want to be prejudiced. So you get it and there is the presentation and then there's public comment and the thing about public comment is I'd say like 75% of it is irrelevant because it's not based on the, like, let's say pot, for example, when we were talking about placing pot, it had nothing to do with pot. It had to do with things like traffic. It had to do with things like zoning and all that. And you have people up there saying, well, I don't think pot's good. Well, that doesn't matter. Because the, the substance of it is irrelevant of the business. That's right. It's and just so, a matter of like, and so I you're see. sitting there weeding through all that stuff and and you're trying to, and somebody's going to make a good point and maybe, you know, and, and they do, and we're listening. And if we're doing it correctly, we're open-minded and we're listening. One of the funniest ones ever was when they tried to build that, when they tried to build that big subdivision over by the bank property. And I wasn't necessarily opposed to it. And that was going on for weeks and there was preliminary planning and there was this. And when it came time for the actual planning, the guy tried to, filibuster the meeting what did he do he just talked and and he brought up a million people and they kept which guy like for the, it or against it the the applicant oh who was trying to get it and they just thought hey we're going to talk for six hours until everybody goes home and then nobody will speak against that's it. right and so because i had plenty that's of time dirty man i started digging into the plans and i was seeing like different i really got an understanding on my own and you know, if they're doing that, then they're dirty. Right. Yeah. And so I started, I'm like, wait, this isn't it. This is not, no, this is too dense. And then we had a good, I had plenty of time to make my argument against it and they got squashed. They got absolutely squashed once we got to vote. So I guess that's a big thing to point out to people. It's like, it's not like you're sitting up there and thinking, okay, like I'm just waiting to make up my opinion. Yeah. You have literally five, six or four criteria. Right that you would have to argue against, right? So like the pot thing, it's not about like, do I like pot or do I want a pot shop there? It's, 
according to the town bylaws, does it violate traffic? No. Does it violate this zoning? No. Does it? And if I can't prove any of those that it violates any of those, then I have to approve it. Yeah. Right? If you want to come, if you want to truly make a case against an application, get those criteria and make your case based on those four things. Like, okay. show me clearly so, how this is in violation of this thing. And I think the town does a good job on when they send out the meeting notes yeah. of saying, like, here's the criteria that we yes. have to look at it at. Because I've done that before, and I've said, okay, well, I think that one doesn't meet that. And then, so, yeah, picking out that specific thing rather than just, like, pounding your fist and saying, I'm outraged. I'm against it. Yeah, it's like, so well, I, that's great, but that I doesn't I opposed matter. an application one time before I was on the board, and... I got it, and I ticked those criteria, and I absolutely eviscerated the application to the point where the person withdrew it. Oh. You know, that's well how done. you would do it effectively. Yeah. Okay. Is you just say, this is obviously going to affect this, 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 and you make your case based on those criteria. So, like, if I'm listening to that, now, with that said, if you do make that case so clearly that I'm afraid you're going to sue me if I make this, you know, now you've made your case. Yeah. You know, so now it's. I've got to I've I've got to go in favor of if you can't make that case because these guys are going to sue us if we. But do, do you it. actually worry about that? I think oh, every yeah. homeowner dreams of like I'm going to sue the town. And am I up there paranoid about getting sued? No. Yeah, like. But we, I am aware that if I happen. were to become biased, that's the consequence, and we get sued. We've been sued. You have no unsuccessfully. Really? People try to sue us because they don't get their way. Applicants uh -huh. or oh, really. Yeah. And we've never been sued successfully. We do a good job, and we have a great attorney. So you guys have the funds to to go to bat for we yourself. We have an attorney. Well, Sursa. So we have an organization. It's you basically. It's like insurance. Okay. Yeah. And every every municipal government pays into it, mm. and we get legal defense. Now that doesn't necessarily mean we're not immune. If I do a dumb thing, I'm in trouble. Yeah, it doesn't you know? mean you'll win, but you have representation. Right. Yeah. And so we get trained every year. Like by, by attorneys from the state level, from our local attorney, we've had work sessions with him and he really is a, does a really good job of telling us how to do our job as far as procedure goes. And that's how we think about it now. Like, and we'll call point of order on each other. We use Robert's rules to tell a fellow board member we're, go, we're getting out of line here. We need to stop. Mm. And that's on us. Do you have people that come on that are pretty green that, yeah, yeah that you have yeah. to kind of, that, that's okay <laughs> though. Like I was too. Yeah. And that's part of it. And you get trained. And, and that's why I, even though I've been trained six times, five times, I still go. Because it's good to know. And it's actually interesting, too. Like, it's kind of cool to know the legalese and this stuff like that. And I think so, too. And it makes your job less stressful because you know when you're going in, like, the burden of the decision is really not about how you feel. It's about the town criteria. But now with the game plan, that'll be another that's part, even more That'll criteria. be another part to it. Do you think people are going to come in and keep trying to develop? Do you see that's a... Yeah. 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 It, wherever there's money to be made, people are going to be coming for it. It's going to happen. So. Do you guys have jurisdiction over outside the town limits? No, no. not at all. So that's like, all county. Okay, so they have to go through the county to do that. Yeah. And so the, the Palisade game plan only applies to the whatever the square, square mile. mile. Yep. So someone who is out by the Rim Trail or... That's all Orchard county. Mesa, yeah. those could be developed... But the county, that's Rim the Trail is going to be hard because you're dealing with CDOT and the railroad. Well, not there. that exact, but yeah. I mean, just like on six going out that way. Like Past once the, you're at it, once you bridge. go over the bridge, yep. right? That's so like right, you go over the bridge, someone could sell their farm there and turn a development. That is, but well, the county is, has rules too. So who's really protecting that is the land trust. Okay. So if you were able to get their map, you could see that there's easements put on a lot of those properties and they fought for that to try and protect it. Everything west of us is protected by that buffer zone and 
all kinds of conservation easements. So the between us and Clifton, there's minimal development that could happen even with subdivisions. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. It's all protected by things that are based, backed by congressional, all kinds of stuff, yeah. So what are the most vulnerable spots here in town that you would see would be like – I mean, because like the property here, like the Herman's property, that was the whole subject last last summer, but that failed. Seems they've gone a different direction now. Are there... I want to be careful using the term vulnerable because I don't want to. Okay, yeah, that's my term. So yeah. I don't want to put that on you. But are there places that you see that will probably try to be developed? Yeah, I would say anything that is open land. Like by Somebody's going to try and... at some point. The bank property is open. This is open. And then obvious, it's worst case scenario, but there's not very many agricultural zoned areas left in the one square mile Mm. you know i'd say potentially developable uh, developable land would be the orchards that are south of the interstate north of canal until you get to the boundary yep just yeah like where the old st catharines is like there you mean to see this yeah we're getting into speculative opinion stuff i don't know (laughs) because to me it seems like that just got bought and that now is I'm just testing you, man. Yeah, I'm, I'm just, just putting you, I'm making sure you're holding up your ethics here. Yeah, you know? to, it's why, yeah. It's, well, it's not even <laughs> ethics. It's just, I I'm don't just know. I'm just nosy, man. I just want to know what's going to happen. When it comes to like that property up there, I mean, no, the I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that they were going to, I just, you said like uh, north of the high line and south of the highway, right? So that's just a very small area. But that yeah, seems east like. Of, east of Alberta, you know, as yeah. that continues to go east, how far can it go? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, right? But it goes back to if people, you know, how do we protect agricultural land? We have to give it value. And yeah. it's value. It's given value by people visiting and tourists because they're coming here and companies are making money. People that own the trees and that own the orchards are making money off of it. And if they could make more money subdividing it. They're going to try. They might. Yeah. You know, but let's not give them a choice. Let's keep supporting ag land. I heard tourism's down this year. It is. What do you have we, any numbers on that? Fifteen percent. Fifteen percent. It's yeah. down mm-hmm. compared to what last year? Compared to last year. <sighs> that's tough though, because that's like all COVID hangover right. too. I it's made hard a point at our budget meeting that I would like to know what the numbers are compared to 2018. That's a great point. So that's what I said: yeah. is give me that information before I draw any conclusions, because I my opinion is I think that um, COVID... Because we were way up during COVID. Oh, it was it was exceptional. Bonkers. Yeah, so it, I think I call that an outlier. Yeah. But I think that that introduced this to a lot of people. And so we're probably still up, and this is probably our new norm. Are the numbers based on just lodging tax? So there's occupied rooms. They can get data on that. There's obviously sales tax. Ah, yes. Yeah, that we can go off of. So sales tax revenue is a basis, and then occupied rooms, we have data on that as well. Okay. So, yeah. yeah, it's funny how COVID was locked down everywhere else, but we boomed here, right? We were flying. It was crazy. I remember that 2020, I got here in around March and was like quarantining or whatever, but was talking to my sister back in D.C., and they were really quarantining. And out here, I'm like going on hikes, sitting on my front porch, whatever, and then I don't think it was till August we got our first death in Mesa County. Yeah. So we were pretty. We, we had did it really pretty. Good. We had it pretty good. Like I said, my sister was in Providence, which was a hotbed. Uh, and yeah. and her perspective versus mine. Same. Yeah, my sister in DC. Yeah, different her friends worlds. in New York. My buddy in New York didn't leave his apartment for two weeks. Yeah. Like, holy shit! Yeah, my man. sister wouldn't get on a plane. Mm. 
so it's it's all different experiences and you try and understand them as well as you can yeah my julie and i were still long distance at that point and so we were actually flying back between uh colorado and miami I can't imagine being on a plane during covid dude it was great honestly because nobody's sitting next to you dude there was no one <laughs> no i remember i i flew from i actually drove down to denver because the deal was so good it was 50 bucks round trip from denver to miami and on my flight to miami there was 11 people on the plane and I just remember thinking, like, walking through Denver Airport, it was like, talk about post-apocalyptic dystopian. There was no one there, you know, at a nighttime flight out of Denver. And then there were 11 people. So we just spread all throughout the plane. It was like nobody even close to you. It was That's And it was wild, right? And I just felt like I was on the – I did get criticized by some people who thought that traveling was not good, which I understood their point. But, I mean – what do you do? I you felt live your life. called to go. And so I went and it was actually really, it was, I'm glad I had that kind of travel experience because when else are you going to fly on an empty airport, empty plane like that? That would have been interesting. Yeah. And 50 bucks. I mean, geez, come on. But yeah. Well, you can't keep Walter Mitty down. So you cannot keep Walter Mitty down. You can't, can't keep Walter Mitty down. Yeah. Well, I feel like you as a teacher got lucky because so many other school districts were remote for what, a year, two years? I wouldn't call it luck because we worked our asses off. To make it so. Oh, what do you mean? Like, just, so we were constantly under the gun of, if the numbers get to a certain point, we're closing. Like, that was right at our temple the entire time. So we and were. you'll have to teach online. Yes. That. Okay. So we were, con, con, what, did they, what did they call it, contact tracing? Yeah. We were doing that. We had all kinds of systems in place. We were wiping down tables. We were. Doing all kind, of, it was exhausting. So you were really like actively trying to prevent it. closure. Yeah, and the and the schools did that. You know that was boots on the ground, making sure that we stayed open, and that's why it was really frustrating when the sentiment against us in the community was poor. It was. Oh yeah. What do you mean? There were well, you remember how COVID people were like the uh, conspiracy yeah. <laughs> theorists and all this other stuff, and it's yeah. like the kid, the teachers are te- telling our kids this and this and this and this, and it's like. We're on your side here. We're keeping the schools open. We're not doing anything wrong. Yeah, we're making your kids wear masks. Did you have to wear a mask? Yes. I hated it. I mean, it it wasn't by choice. I wasn't like proudly wearing my mask, but they're like, I can't believe it. It's like nobody else is in school. Yeah. So we're in school and masked. Compromise. Oh, yeah. I mean. You know, so yeah, we were getting hammered on social media and just all these other places and people were pulling their kids out of school and. Obviously, the effects are still ranging. You know, we don't have all those kids back. And yeah, did people skip grade or not skip, but like be held back because no, of COVID? Or no, you don't hold kids back anymore. Never. Yeah. Really? Nope. You Why don't not? have to go to school. Like, what? You literally don't have. There's still truancy stuff, accountability, but they don't retain kids based on anything anymore. You don't have to. I mean, I'm trying to think. I guess you don't really take a test to go to the next grade. No, you can go to school, sleep all day, and go to go to the next grade. Do you have kids like that? Uh-huh. <laughs> that just I mean, I wouldn't out? say I have a lot of them because I work hard not to. How do you maintain control? Oh, so one quick AI yeah. story I wanted to share earlier. You know, it's I read this and I think it was being piloted in China, that could be fake news, but for the sake of discussion, they had this AI technology that you'll put a headset on and it can monitor your brain activity. The article was talking about two th- places this is being used. One is in the workplace. So your boss 
they can tell by your brain activity whether you're concentrating, whether you're daydreaming. They can tell whether you're working, and they can also use that in schools to say whether you're really paying attention or not. And it's based on this headset that monitors your brain activity. There's a dystopian. I was watching. So there's a great documentary on Netflix called QB. Patrick Mahomes and quarterbacks. Oh, quarterbacks. And uh, God, was it Marcus? It was either Marcus Mariota or Kirk Cousins was using technology like that to improve his awareness, like his just his capacity to take in information and observe. And it was something along the lines of he'd be watching film, and this thing would take note every time he would daydream or do anything. And he was taking feedback from that to dial in laser. Wow. I thought that was cool. Imagine if you could use that on your students. Oh, I would be a mess myself. I would be. I'm so bad. <laughs> what are you, bad I've what? forgotten that we were here five times since we started talking. Well, that's the point of this. <laughs> You're supposed to just forget we're doing this and you just say everything that you need yeah. to say. You uh, took me to Miami for 20 minutes in my mind. Ah, that's good, man. There you go. Well, how often do you sit down and have a two-hour conversation? Not right? very often. You know? But I guess you talk to people all day. No, you that's know, I, I, it's not like this. It's not dialogue. It's not, you know, we don't do a whole lot of that. So this has been fun. Oh, I'm glad glad to hear it. Yeah. If you want to keep, we can end let's it if go. you want, or no, we can, keep, we can keep going. Got I, on your mind. I'm just curious, like, how you deal with, like, I, I'm not a parent. Okay. But I just, like, how do you maintain control of a classroom in today's world? I it's, mean. It's all systems. What does that mean? So, so good classroom management is not being scary or having great consequences or whatever. It is. Yeah, like are you uh, trying to be a fearful teacher? No, so uh, I'm of the belief that 95% of the kids, if they clearly know what they're supposed to do, will do it. And so with that, you work backwards and you have – it's been interesting because this is what I do. I spend the first two weeks of my school year building in standard operating procedures, expectations, routines. It's almost like in football you're teaching them how to run the plates, right? And so it's how you enter class, how you do all these things, and you structure it and dial it in to be exactly how you want them to act. So my kids come into class, they, they're silent, stone silent. Silent entry? Yes. And, it, and I've done it for 17 years. Really? Yep. It's all, this isn't actually, an, it's not an uncommon thing. I mean, I don't know. I think I'm pretty good at, at executing it. I think some people make mistakes and they're not strict enough. But there's a thing they call with itness with teachers that the with long, itness with itness with itness. The more like the longer that. you do it, the more sensitive you are to things. Okay. So like I can hear a pin drop in my classroom without question. I always tell the kids, I was like, I can hear your thoughts and they're right gross. when they come in. Yeah. They're not chatting before not class. All. No, they can chat in the hall. I demonstrate it for them. I blah blah blah, and then I get to the door and I stop, and I'm like, that's what's expected. And then for the first couple of days of school. You make them enter perfectly before you allow them to come in. But what do you do if they sit down and start talking? You kick them out and make them do it again. You say, get out. Yep, do it again. Well, you do it. You say, you need more practice. So we go do it again. And then we do it until they get it. And then you reward them. So I play music. And plus, they like it. It's perfect. It's silent. What do you play? Chill. Uh, We play a mix, whatever. It's, you know. Random tunes. I have like a yeah. massive playlist of songs. All kinds of music. Forever. Cool. Yeah. And, and I tell them that. I'm like, you're not always going to like it, but at some point you're going to like it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, don't, I'm not a radio. Don't shout out requests at me. It's, it's not all old and it's not all new. 
And that must set the vibe pretty well. Yeah, I think they it does. come in, they're listening, they're relaxing, and then it's been well received through the years. And the kids eventually realize they like it a lot, and they they are compliant. And then you get two or three that are not, and then you deal with them individually, and then you get them to find it, you figure it out, or they don't. Yeah, you know, and that's where it becomes a little bit more difficult. And you're dealing with parents and compliance and whatever it is your system, but then you have behavior systems too. So the more systems and the more they're effective and the more you use them consistently, the better your school is going to be. And I think, like I was saying early on, I love the systems at Mount Garfield. They seem very effective. I can do what I need to do at that school with confidence. But don't you ever just come in in like a rotten mood and cranky? That's, I guess, our skill. You know, I think that that's if like, what what would you say about a surgeon doing the same thing? You know, does a surgeon get to have a bad day? In our case, I think that is the skill of a teacher is that you're able to put all that, leave it all on the sidelines or whatever they say, you know, you leave it at the door. Yeah. Like I've been going through some of the worst parts of my life and I've had to have a class and I've had to be patient and not blow up without question. There are teachers who have probably lost their jobs because they had a bad day and they came in and did the wrong thing. And that's just, there's no excuse for it. Do a lot of teachers get fired? No, I'm saying they did something ridiculous oh, okay. because they had the bad day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, not a lot of teachers. You have to be pretty – you have to – it's hard. Pretty egregious. But yeah. it's hard to get through those first three years. Okay. You know, because they don't have to have a reason in those first three years. If you suck, they're not bringing you back. Okay. And there's plenty of people that don't make it through that. I think the bigger issue is at a certain point, let's call it year nine, you get burned out. And that's where – how do you survive that? Like how do you – get past that part. And How I, did you do it? I switched subjects. You used to be social studies yeah. and now you're writing ELA. English. And yeah. now I feel like a new teacher again. I switched grades. I switched subjects. Now I'm switching schools. Yeah. Not a, I, it worked out. Like that was one of the perks of this is like, I'm, I'm re-energized, you know? And then, you know, at some point that's probably when I'll go into admin and I'll be licensed to do that. Yeah. You want to be a principal. You said, what yeah. intrigues you about that? Um, I don't know if I'm intrigued on it yet. I'm op- I'm leaving the door open to do it, but maybe at a certain point I will be as enge- it, I'll be as excited about working with adults as I am with kids and helping yeah. them be as good as they. C- maybe that's the door. I just want to have the opportunity to do it if I want. Yeah. But I'm in no hurry to stop being around kids. They're, they're a lot of fun right now. I'm glad to hear it, mate. So yeah, are you writing yourself? Any, um, any books coming out or something? No, we can I'd read? love to be. That would be fun. You kind of motivated me to think about that. I just don't know what I'd write about. Right about. I anything. went through a minute and a half where I wanted to be Nathaniel Hawthorne. Why not? Because I had just read The House of Seven Gables. I've never read it. It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and you were like, I have you do ever this. read Hawthorne? The Scarlet Letter or The Scarlet the Old Letter? Yeah. yeah, The Scarlet so Letter. So he's got this thing that cracks me up where he gets fixated on description. And he'll spend 25 pages writing about a room. Oh, that's what I hate, man. Oh, I can't stand it's that. It's awful. So I kind of was like, I, if he can do that. And I went through an exercise where I started, I was up on the Mesa describing what I saw and I threw out some pages on that. And That's cool. I was intrigued. I mean, I, I kind of did the same thing. I went through a Henry David Thoreau phase, Thoreau's very conquered, yeah. you know, I got into my, my conquered phase of my life and reading him and Emerson. And I was like, he just is like sprawling thought. But why don't you just write like you're, you're into this dystopian thing. Why don't you create your own reality of that or just write a nonfiction about an experience? I just haven't figured out what I would do it on yet. Yeah. You know, and I think that'd be fun. And I'd love, I've had a, one of my f- former teacher colleagues, Darren Cook has written three books now, I think. And I think that's neat. You wrote your book and I think that's awesome. 
I would love to do it. I just don't know how, I guess. <laughs> you just start, man. Yeah. yeah. And I started, you know. Yeah. I just haven't really continued on with it or figured out who I would be. And Well, you'd be you. Yeah. That's the thing. I, I mean, you've read the nonfiction book, Swim, Bike, Bonk, that, I've, yeah. that I wrote. But I've written, like, two novels that I've never have you know never seen past my computer hard drive tons of short stories that i used you know, i would share them at the time this is going back a couple of years but it's fun but i i was infected by hemingway and i i saw that as my i always had the trouble like what do i write about but i'm like well this guy just took a trip and he fictionalized it so why don't i just take something cool that i've done and then fictionalize it because then you know a lot about it that was hemingway's big thing like don't write about something that you don't know about yeah he and was really into the one true sentence one you know, true sentence. I love that. Exactly. Yep. And he has some of the best advice, you know, like never leave off, like always leave off when you know what's going to happen next. Like don't exhaust yourself one day and write everything that you can think of because then when you wake up the next morning, you're like, oh crap, well, where do I go from here? So he would write and then three quarters of the way through the day, he'd be like, all right, I know what I'm going to continue to do. So I'm going to stop. So now I know where to start tomorrow. And that really helped me. Well, and I'd always, you know, like if I could be a fly on the wall, I'd love to be where he was at in the cafes. Cause when he was in Paris, he wasn't writing a sun also rises. He was writing what the Nick Adams stories. Yep. Exactly. You know? And yeah. so that to me is like where, if I could like be in his body, I bet that was cool. Yeah. The way he describes it too, he had this little like loft and he would have a wood burning fire up there. Yeah. And he would, I don't know how they did it, man. Like how did they get that drunk and then wake up in the morning <laughs> and write? Like that was his great. Cause he never got drunk. Remember? Cause he says that like they drank all the time and never got drunk yeah. and they criticized anybody who did. Sure. And so they managed to pace themselves in a certain way. And I guess, man, that's what they said. Yeah, I mean, but that's what he would always give Scott Fitzgerald crap about. He'd be like, look, you can have fun, but you have to have the discipline to get up and put your pages in in the morning. Yeah. But that's why they live such a fun life, because he would get up, probably write for four hours in the morning and be like, all right, let's hit the cafe. You know? One of my favorite things, and I think it came from a movable feast, was he was, I'm going to botch the line. It's one of the few like lines that I can almost quote from Hemingway, but he's sitting in a cafe and he sees a beautiful woman on the side. And he looks at her, and it's like he captures her and mentally kidnaps her. And he says, I've seen you, beauty. You belong to me now. Wow. And it's like anything that happens from this point forward, you are now in my brain. And he doesn't go hit on her. He doesn't go talk to her. He's like. But he has her image. He has yeah. her in my head, and he's like, that's my habit. Now I think that way about dogs now. Did you ever uh, read Hills Like White Elephants? I might have. I don't remember it off it's, the top of my they're, head. Um, he has some crazy plot lines, man. It, they're sitting at a, it's a couple. They're sitting at a train station. They're drinking, of course. They're waiting for the train to come, and they're having this conversation that's very heated and tense. But they don't quite say what it's about. But it's clearly something they've been thinking about and talking about. And it's them ha talking about having an abortion, and he's trying to convince her to have the abortion. But it doesn't specifically say it. You know, the iceberg theory. Yeah, and that that's a great one too. But he has just. I think like I do remember that one. I don't think that premises. would have been a content that I would have remembered necessarily. But I do. I think that one now. I've got his. I mean, I've got a his book of short stories, yeah. and I like to just peruse through it and and and. I think that would be as a writer, I would have fun with that. Is I'm probably more likely to have like a thousand okay ideas than one great one. Yeah, and that's probably a struggle for some of those fiction writers. Is how do you get into the novel? And it seems like with him, you can tell after, why did I just forget, the Spanish War? 
Well, he had for whom the bell tolls. For whom the bell tolls, and yeah. then farewell to farewell arms. arms. And then I you can kind of tell that he becomes yeah. a professional after that. Yeah. Like at that point, he's writing for a living. Yep. And he's got to keep cranking him out for Scribner's. Hundred percent, man. And because yeah. it, it just isn't as good. Yeah, because that's when what's the one about the rich guy in Cuba to have or have not? Yeah. And it just you could tell he half-assed it. Yeah. And so. Yeah, and well, you know, his whole thing was like you have to write about what you know. So some of his, um, like even in the sun also rises, some of the descriptions of the running with the bulls are just like so detailed, and it's like, okay, I don't need that much. And a lot of his later books are that it's like a whole book about like hunting or fishing or boxing. Like he's really into these specific things, and he nerds out on them on page for pages. And you're like, okay, but that's why I love the sun also rises because it was just so relatable. It's just like. I loved one of my favorite things was with For Whom the Bell Tolls, how he writes it. And he writes it in an English literal translation of Versotro, uh, Vosotros Spanish. Like the I obscenity in thy mother's milk. You know, like he write like, why does he talk like that? Well, he's literally translating Spanish in a Spanish sense. Oh, that's interesting. You know what I mean? That's yeah. how I interpreted that. And I'm like, that's clever. I just remember from that book, it always makes me think of onions because <laughs> he always describes eating those onion sandwiches. Yes. That's so random, man. It but. was a good, I, I loved that book and I loved, I, except for obviously the ending of Farewell to Arms. You didn't like it? No. Why not? Because it's too quick. But it, you know what? It, so it was real, powerful though. though because it probably happened that fast. It's so real. And, and I appreciated the fact that the version that I read had the alternate endings in it. Oh, I've never read the yeah. alternate endings. He, he didn't, he wasn't, confident in the one that if i can find my copy I'm, i can well you know i know the audience is on the edge of their seat they're yeah. going to read farewell to arms tonight so we don't want to blow the ending right book. it is a great book kathleen barkley i mean the romance between like that is just so nostalgic yeah you know and my grandfather was in world war ii he had three purple hearts so i always like think of him it's like these soldiers got hurt and they're getting taken care of. and it was so like those traditional roles back then of like the soldier and the nurse and just that love story do is, you think that every Wounded soldier had the mobility and the authority that he did in that story. Probably not. That's what cracked me up. Yeah, I, I was mean, like, he's know. just getting the care, and he can go and come and go yeah. where he wants to. I mean, you know, it's fictionalized. The rest right? of those so. guys were in barracks, and you know, and yeah, cots. they're not getting special attention. Yeah, or they're like, you know, maybe they're not that good looking or charming. But he was apparently obviously. Well, it's a fictional book, but yeah, I mean, the romance part of that is great. I always loved when yeah. I'd see the versions of people like criticizing him and he's like, it was from my imagination. Yeah. And he was so adamant about that. I mean, but it wasn't because he was injured in the war. Like yeah. he was an ambulance driver. That's what I'm saying. The whole thing is lifted from his life, but it's fictionalized. Right. One of the biggest things I take away from, from him is that, you know, as a writer and an artist, and we can all look at this in our own ways in life, Hemingway is considered one of the greatest writers of all time. People would agree with that generally everybody knows who he is but there are so many people also that hate Hemingway I know they hate his writing I tried to get so many girlfriends over the years to read The Sun Also Rises and they all hated it and yeah. for good reason because the way he portrays women is not always there was flattering. an article in one of the major publications and I forget what it was recently like it was a big one it was the one of the big I forget what it was is it time to be honest about Hemingway and it just trashed it about he was like too macho and just all of it, like that he wasn't that. Good. I'll have to read that. I haven't read it. I'll have to if I can find it. It was send it to me. Yeah, but you know what? At the end of the day, though, is it's 
what, what do they say these days? It's a vibe. It's a vibe. And I loved it. Yeah, well, that's and what... And you can't take that away from me. You can't. And what that's what gives me hope. It's like, he was the most famous, but he was also highly criticized, and that's art, right? So whatever yeah. you're doing in your life, go for it. Just be you. And people are going to love it. People are going to hate it. But he's so authentic, or at least he perceives to be, and that's what that's what makes it special. And if it makes you want to, like, experience where he was at, like, I, I want nothing more than to go to Paris and hang out at a cafe. Exactly. You know, and just kind of in his part of what a, the left bank or whatever part of Paris it was, it was his. And I tried Negronis. I still haven't had a, Mar- a Montgomery Martini yet. What's that? That's a 16 to 1 Hemingway Martini. 16 to 1? 16 to 1. Ooh. I think you basically just take the vermouth and line it slightly on the, I don't know. But that was his thing. That was his style. Okay. So it's like if it gets you to think like that, it, it it's the ride you want to go on. Like I can, I had a love hate relationship with Cormac McCarthy. Some of the worst books I ever, I I hated Blood Meridian. Like I'm just like I don't see where this is going. It's I random violence. It. it sucks. But it, people call it his best book, you know. And so be it. Um, well, that's what I'm saying. People are gonna love it or hate it, no matter what. So as an artist, you just have to write it. And that's why like yeah. for you, my advice would be just like, write your story. Whenever you figure out what it is, just write it. Don't overthink it. Cause no matter what it is, people are going to like it and then they're going to criticize it. Yeah. That's just the way it goes. Maybe. Someday. Just like this podcast. Some people are going to be like, that was awesome. When you talk to Jamie, other people are going to be like, that was totally boring. I'm like, all right, well, you know what? It was our conversation. So it is. What Tell it them is. they're boring. I will. You're you know boring. What? I'll deliver that message, buddy. Mm. Well, thank you so much for sitting down with me. Yeah, man. this was fun. It's been fun. Let's yeah. do it again sometime. All righty. I appreciate you it. You got another year on your term? Two years? Three. Three ish. years. Ish. It keeps getting longer let's every call time it, you tell me. Let's call it two to three. We'll be watching out for I'm you. I'm day to day. And I hope some people learn from this that they can reach out to you if they have Absolutely. issues here I, in Palisade. Because we all love this town, right? We like to hear it too. Like, Because it's always good to get input. It's good to get information. You want to be informed as well as you can. So, 100%. Buddy. All right. Jamie Somerville, thanks for coming on. Man. Absolutely. Thank you. The terrain flying high up once again. Got my crew sitting healthy and my boo living wealthy. Level 99, never settle in my mind. So I pedal and I climb up the pedestal and find almighty weapon. So I calm lightly step into the castle, satchel, tackled, wrestled down the corridor where I'm grounded through the floor. Roundhouse into my core, down, out, and through the door. Sword down in my side. I gotta round up and ride. Face boss, break jaws till I take off. Face off, stop and swing my serious straight. This is it. Take the title, disappear in the night to the whole wide world. Got the keys to the kingdom overseas with the wisdom guarantee that my rhythm hit the whole wide world. Slay the boss in the castle when we cross final battle. Then I walk out, travel to the whole wide world. Got the keys to the kingdom overseas with the wisdom guarantee that my rhythm hit the whole wide world. Slay the boss in the castle when we cross final battle. Then I walk out, travel to the